Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. he spends much time focused on it or thinking about it. The president said when he came into office on Inauguration Day, he said he was going to help get rid of the uncivil war in this country. So I guess through that lens right now, does the president think there are things that he can do differently, or how does he react to the stuff he sees out there when it is one of his primary promises or desires to help bring Americans together? Well, it takes two to move towards a more civil engagement discourse in this country. Can I get your response to this report from the uh, Tax Policy Center that uh, under the Build Back Better plan, most millionaires would get a tax cut. Uh, Two-thirds of people making over a million dollars would get a cut on average of $16,800, mostly because of SALT. Uh, separately, it finds that 20 to 30 percent of middle-class households would pay more in taxes. Granted, it's a small amount, between $100 and $230, depending on income levels. But how does the White House frame this reconciliation plan as a tax cut for the middle class paid for by the rich when this analysis is showing the opposite? It actually doesn't, just to give a little bit more context of what the report showed. You just said that the real risk uh, on inflation is in action, but uh, so far this week we haven't seen any action from the administration on gas prices. Is the message to Americans headed into Thanksgiving, where everybody will be driving to see their family and friends, that you think the current prices are acceptable? You said that it's a workers' market, that some industries need to create more competitive packages, that it's, that it's a good thing people have more choices. Is that your way of saying that the White House doesn't view this as a problem at all? On this president's party on Saturday, is there and then just something tied to an ongoing court case? Why did President Biden suggest that Kyle Rittenhouse on trial in Kenosha is a white supremacist? So, Peter, what I, I'm not going to speak to right now is anything about an ongoing trial, uh, nor the president's past comments. Uh, what I can reiterate for you is the president's uh, view uh, that we shouldn't have, broadly speaking, uh, vigilantes patrolling our communities with assault weapons. We shouldn't have opportunists corrupting peaceful protests by rioting and burning down the communities they claim to represent anywhere in the country. As you know, closing arguments in this particular case, which I'm not speaking to, I'm just making broad comments about his own view. Um, there's an ongoing trial. We're awaiting a verdict. Beyond that, I'm not. And Stephanie joins me now live. Steph, it's great to see you. As you say, inflation's over 6%, numbers we haven't seen in more than 30 years. So, how much higher can these prices go, and when do you see them coming down? Well, listen, Willie, nobody knows exactly when they're going down, but you have to put all this in perspective. This inflation is not in isolation, and the government predicted it was going to be a challenging recovery, recovery all tied to COVID.
So it's why you see things like that expanded child tax credit. You've got the families of over 60 million kids on average getting $430 a month for people on fixed incomes, older people on Social Security. They're getting those fixed payments adjusted next year up 5.9% for inflation. And the dirty little secret here, Willie, while nobody likes to pay more, on average, we have the money to do so. Household savings hit a record high over the pandemic. We didn't really have anywhere to go out and spend. And as we said a moment ago, we're expecting retail sales this holiday season to break records. For those who own their homes, the value of our homes are up. And while the stock market isn't the economy, you got over half of American households with some investment in the markets, and the markets have hit record highs. So we need to put all of this in perspective. This time last year, when you and I were talking, Willie, nobody had a vaccine. Now 200 million Americans do, and we're seeing this push of demand, and that's pushing up pricing. So bottom line is, this is something that, it, it this has got to just work itself out, and you know, the Democrats are the ones in charge, so they're going to pay the price of this sort of short-term economic frustration. And it's unfortunate, but the Democrats don't do a great job telling their economic story. Yes, this inflation number is not a good one, but they've got a great economic story to tell, right? Five million jobs created, 200 million people vaccinated. Those vaccine numbers tie directly to the economy. You couldn't open the economy without getting America healthy again. Um, we are seeing economic recovery. What the Biden administration isn't doing is selling that, and they can't. Well, look, I do think, as I said, Jake, I think things are a lot better in this country than they were a year ago with regard to COVID, with regard to the economy. But we have a lot of work left to do. And I think voters are in a show me, don't tell me mode. I don't think they really care as much about what I'm saying on TV or what you're saying on TV as much as they do about us putting results uh, into their lives. Uh, this bill the president's going to sign on Monday, uh, the infrastructure bill, I think is a big step forward in terms of dealing with a lot of the longstanding issues in this country. And I think the Build Back Better bill, which we hope the House will vote on, scheduled to vote on this coming week when they get back from Veterans Day recess, is another thing. Uh, again, I have no objection to voters saying, look, I don't want to just hear speeches about it. I want to see action. We got action just before Congress went out. After four years and, frankly, 50 years of Washington promising that there would be an infrastructure week, there'd be action on that, we finally got that bill passed. It'll be signed on Monday. We have to continue to work on the other economic problems. And of course, we have to continue our work on COVID. Just this past week, we rolled out the vaccine for ages five to 11. This is the only country in the world. Ours is the only government in the world that has bought enough vaccine for every child in this country to get vaccinated. We've gotten about a million kids vaccinated in just the first few days of this program. We're gonna see that continue to grow in the days ahead. Uh, we have problems to solve, but we're solving them. If anything can get the American people fired up, it's infrastructure. So. <laughs> And Biden is alone. If Americans really aren't happy with this vice president, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris has an approval rating of 28 percent, which is makes no sense because she basically has nothing to do. I mean, it's like <laughs> criticizing a backup quarterback. Tom Brady is OK. I don't love the way Blaine Gabbert has his legs folded on the bench. I have to be honest. Kamala's approval rating uh, of 28 percent is even lower than the 30 percent who approved of Dick Cheney in 2008 after he shot a guy in the face. <laughs> I think these people are forgetting that at least 10% of, of those polled approved of Dick Cheney because he shot a guy in the face. <laughs> I think I know why Kamala's ratings are low, besides sexism and racism, which are the obvious ones. It's because whenever she's next to Joe, standing near him, behind him, she looks like an assassin. She looks like... <laughs> 
Nebula next to Thanos, ready to, right? Especially with a mask. Hey, Kamala, this guy's being a wise guy. Show him what we do to wise guys. It is surprising that Biden's... A new poll shows the president's approval rating is at an all-time low. Just 41% of those surveyed said that they approve of the president's job performance. 53% said they do not approve. But his approval rating taking another nosedive and his Build Back Better agenda in major doubt. With this is a devastating poll for Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, and it paints a, a portrait of a, of a party that appears disconnected from people's lives. Broad perception, more than 62% say that Democrats are not standing for people like them. A Washington Post ABC News poll shows President Biden's approval rating ticking down to 41%, fueled by concerns over inflation. Even losing support among Democrats and independents. We've been asking this question for 40 years, Whit, and we have never seen Republicans with this wide a margin in that so-called generic. Tucker Carlson Originals presents the most dangerous, crazy, sinister, disturbing, terrorist recruitment video. The most criminal movie of the year. Well, I, I want to say criminal, but technically that's not true. Uh, although maybe it should be. The reviews are in. Tucker Carlson makes a tribute video for the terrorists. For the story of a mostly peaceful protest. Uh, it is not generally speaking unruly. The movie that will have you jumping out of your seat screaming. The critics are raving, raving mad. As in crazy as a loon. Tucker Carlson producing a pretty extraordinary, very cinematic, persuasive documentary, big blockbuster movie. Oh, I love that. We've gone Hollywood. By the way, it worked. Tucker and his crack investigative team to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. But it's beginning to expose exactly what the establishment is doing. So what Tucker Carlson is doing is going against the American people. Trump tweeted once. They don't hate me, they hate you, I'm just in the way. Now, the real agenda of coming after the people is becoming more apparent. Agent Kimberly, thank you both so much for joining me this morning. And Gage, I want to start with you. You were shot in the arm by Kyle Rittenhouse during the protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, while the other two men he shot that night died. With Rittenhouse <clears throat> taking the stand, what did you think of his testimony? Well, I think anytime you see your would-be murderer on the stand, it, it, it's emotional. And what was your reaction to, to him breaking down and crying on the stand? To me, it seemed like a, a child who had just gotten caught doing something that he wasn't supposed to. More upset that he was caught and less upset about what he had done and what he had taken and the numerous lives that he affected through his actions that night. And, and Kimberly, as Gage's lawyer, what, what is your take on what we've seen and heard in the courtroom so far? Well, I think that um, it should be recognized that, uh, you know, Mr. Rittenhouse was an active shooter and that it's important that I believe, as, you know, Gage has said, that some of his testimony was extremely inconsistent. Um, you know, he was not, I believe, in imminent fear of danger for his own life. Um, Gage acted and, and, you know, he was not threatening Mr. Rittenhouse. Uh, Mr. Rittenhouse rewrapped um, his gun with, with Gage. And I think that's really, really important that, 
you know, people need to pay attention to the inconsistent statements from the active shooter. You hear, I have to tell you, my brother is a truck driver um, and he drives across the country. And it's very uh, nerve wracking to me uh, when he's on the road um, because uh, it's just it feels like a dangerous industry. But you're trying to disrupt that and bring more people who look like us to the industry. Tell us why. Yes, ma'am. First of all, thank you for having me this morning. And yes, we are. And we say we're not building truck drivers, but safe CMV operators, folks that can get back to their home whenever they're done with their ship. That's the most important part, ma'am. Well, how can the industry be more welcoming? Because I have to tell you, I talked to a lot of truck drivers and uh, preparing for this segment. And um, most of these truck drivers are people of color. And they talked about, um, you know, hearing some of the racism um, over the CB. Um, you know, this is, again, an industry populated um, by a lot of white men over the age of 55. Um, this group of people overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Um, some people have talked about, you know, aggressive truck drivers uh, cutting them off or not being helpful. Um, so obviously, the more populated it is with people of color, I think you'll see less of that. But how can you encourage people to come and disrupt this space when it seems a bit unwelcoming? Well, I think just what you're doing, getting uh, myself as a black female out there and letting people know I drove for almost eight years and yes, ran into lots of racism, but however, was out there to do my job. And I think that uh, women are definitely the more we can just get the news out to them that trucking is an industry that will not only help them to get further in life, but their family and all of that and present the package to them appropriately, regardless of what anybody else has to say, they're going to be in charge. They're going to be the person behind that steering wheel doing the job every single day and making it happen. So we just need to get the word out there. And I appreciate you for helping us get this word out. The women will be able to close this deficit if we can just let them know. Give them the so, Let me just remind people of the names of the victims. Joseph Rosenbaum, who was 36 years old. Anthony Huber, who was 26. Gage Grosskreutz, who's only 27 years old, was injured. These are the victims. These are the people um, that people ought to remember are the people who were hurt here, not the person who was crying on the stand today. Paul Butler, thank you very much, my friend. Up next. Ooh. We need critical race theory in this. We've been led to believe that there was no coordination between the NSBA and the White House and that Attorney General Garland acted independently. Turns out both may be false. In newly released communications, a timeline is emerging showing NSBA members in the White House meeting for weeks in September before sending that letter to the president comparing parents to domestic terrorists. And it was before the DOJ took action in early October. The NSBA's president confirmed firms in a mid-October memo saying, quote, NSBA has been actively engaged with the White House, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Education, Surgeon General, and other federal agencies on pandemic-related issues. But when Garland was pressed under oath in late October about coordination with the NSBA, he denied being influenced. Watch. The letter that we, um, that was subsequently sent does not change the um, association's concern about violence or threats of violence. Uh, it, it alters some of the language in the letter, language in, in the letter that we did not rely on and is not contained in my own memorandum. 
Those words are now contradicted as the NSBA's president painted a different account, writing in response to the letter sent by NSBA on October 4th, 2021, the attorney general announced in a memorandum widely shared throughout the U.S. Department of Justice that he was ordering all U.S. attorney offices and local FBI offices to reach out to local and state law enforcement officials to coordinate efforts on this problem within. Uh, you know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues, went on to become a great pitcher in the pros into the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Page. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 17th of November year of our Lord 2020. And what an intro is that? They're in a different universe. And we got a CRT section today, but I had to play Biden saying Negro. Do you know it's against the law to use the word Negro in anything in Washington? Yet he said Negro. And then, of course, there was already fact checks that he didn't really say Negro. He misspoke. You know what would happen if Trump said Negro? That's our one and only Trump. What if Trump? It's impossible. It's just impossible. There's so much wrapped up in that shit and that bumper. Just everything wrong. White truck drivers and white, 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 white piece of shit because our narrative fell apart. And since this show was about the media, it's once again another story they lied about. The entire Rittenhouse. I mean, you. I didn't know till this week that one guy was a pedo and the other was a, a abuser of women. He had his grandma. The career criminals kicky face dude that they don't even say his name he was a career criminal so basically the left loves career criminals who go out and burn shit for them so they can win elections yeah that that's that's pretty cool and it is starting to show let's be honest the polls this is an ABC WAPA poll. So you already waited 13 to 19 left. And what do we got? Horrible. Every demographic, horrible. But what did they do? Well, they're scared of their readers. Economic discontent, criticism of Biden's lifts of GOP to record early advantage. Lifts the GOP because the GOP is really not good. New WAPO poll, Biden approval 6 to 38, new low. GOP leads a general ballot, generic ballot by 10 points, 51 to 41. It should be a lower. It's probably lower. But you see what the media, Stephanie Rule and that bumper going, it's your fault. You're just too decadent. Stop buying shit. Republican lead Democrats by the largest margin in 40 years of WAPO ABC News midterm poll. And let's be honest, they're garbage. What are the what are the Republicans stand for? What are the Republicans doing? What are any of them doing? Nothing. J6 committee misleading witnesses about Republican staff presence. Whole article by Molly Hemway. They're actually not there. They're just she Cheney is doing what they needed her to be the bipartisan. It's just like the 13 dudes that went across to vote for the, the uh, infrastructure bill. 
literally aren't doing anything. It just gives him the win for bipartisan. You even saw in there their ability to twist everything because we have little Republicans who go over and want to pander to the left and not stop the insane spending, which is causing the inflation. I mean, not covering that much today. Here's two versions of what we found out this week that the media covered for the Biden administration and the attorney general lied about the school board FBI involvement. We've been led to believe that there was no coordination between the NSBA and the White House and that Attorney General Garland acted independently. Turns out both may be false. In newly released communications, a timeline is emerging showing NSBA members in the White House meeting for weeks in September before sending that letter to the president comparing parents to domestic terrorists. And it was before the DOJ took action in early October. The NSBA's president confirms in a mid-October memo saying, quote, NSBA has been actively engaged with the White House, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Education, Surgeon General, and other federal agencies on pandemic-related issues. But when Garland was pressed under oath in late October about coordination with the NSBA, he denied being influenced. Watch. The letter that we, um, that was subsequently sent does not change the um, association's concern about violence or threats of violence. Uh, it, it alters some of the language in the letter, language in, in the letter that we did not rely on and is not contained in my own memorandum. Those words are now contradicted as the NSBA's president painted a different account, writing in response to the letter sent by NSBA on October 4th, 2021, the attorney general announced in a memorandum widely shared throughout the U.S. Department of Justice that he was ordering all U.S. attorney offices and local FBI offices to reach out to local and state law enforcement officials to coordinate efforts on the... I just want to... We don't put this all in one place because we cover them as different stories. But right now in America, serving on a school board is dangerous. There are threats against people who serve on school boards. Right now in America, being an election worker is dangerous. There are documented threats against election workers. Right now in America, being a nurse or a doctor is dangerous. There are reports in newspapers all across the country of ER doctors and nurses changing out of their scrubs before they get on public transportation. Right now in America, it is dangerous to be one of the 13 Republicans who voted for infrastructure, something Donald Trump scrapped and begged for for five years. And Mark Meadows, the ex-White House chief of staff, endorsed punishment of those members, of them being stripped of their committee assignments. This is like the mean loser boys club. What is going on? Look, violence and threats of violence and intimidation are now a tool of the modern Republican Party, which is not to say that every Republican supports violence or threats of violence. Of course not. But they're willing to overlook it. If you look at the impeachment vote, they're willing to look the other way or or tacitly condone it. And, And to this point about, you know, where the Republican Party is and what most Republican Party party officials believe, 
I think the discussion so far has been right. I think there are a lot of them still who, you know, just quietly and cowardly uh, don't say anything. But I actually think more and more of them have adopted the tenets of Trumpism. If you look at the energy in the party now, the Senate yeah. candidates who are, 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 now, are, are running for Senate this cycle, who are going to be the nominees next year, and some of them will end up in the Senate, all of the energy is is around the same kind of ideas, but not I say ideas, they're not really ideas, the same kind of demagoguery, the same kind of attacks that Donald Trump launched. Donald Trump may be gone for now, but Trumpism is is keen in the Republican Party. And you see that from the Senate to the House on down to, to uh, uh, officials running for local elections. It is now a party that is it has at its core attacking democracy, attacking truth, uh, attacking anyone who disagrees it, with it, and even turning to violence when they have to. There's an unbelievable... They're just not covering it, or they're saying these people are being influenced by Trump's big lie. Well, I don't think Trump has to do with dozens of troops, family members still in Afghanistan. We, we still didn't bring them home. I don't think you can account for... Greg Gutfeld beating all Nate late night because people are so sick of it. And then Google researcher warns on dangers of new Axios Google election project. They're scheming for the midterm. It is the same shit over again. They're going to influence the electorate by not letting you find anything. They are going to be the purveyors of fake news. And they're going to steal another election. Because we're just now starting to come to grips with one of the first ones. The Washington Post has attached editor's note to stories on Sergey Milan, the supported source of the Steele dossier, whose contributions thereto were called into question by indictment of Igor Dachenko, and they didn't do a return. Glenn Glenn Greenwald, the Washington Post just retracted two major stories published on Steele dossier with perhaps unprecedented step of removing huge parts of the article and rewriting them. Yet it still refuses to say... Who lied to make them pu- publish this? Who who lied to make them publish this? The scope of the media Russiagate fraud is only starting to be appreciated. Matt Talibi has called it the generation's WMD in terms of media malfeasance. Look at how extreme their conduct now is trying to clean it up, reflecting what a huge, sustained fraud it was. But it's rare for a publisher to make wholesale changes after publication and to republish the edited stories, especially more than four years afterward, no such case comes immediately or specifically to mind, at least no historical case that stirred led lasting controversy, said W. Joseph Campbell. But they're doing it. Because they can go on every day. You saw it in the intro. The GOP needs to stop using inflation as cudgel. The new CBO is showing that his Build Back Better will raise taxes on 30% of the middle class. It's not paid for. It's an extreme lie. But when you're dealing with the Democrats and you're dealing with the media, pour one out for the Congress reporters who had to work today even though congressional offices are closed for Veterans Day and chances of return calls or email are nil. The media are the heroes on Veterans Day. And as we honor our nation's veterans, we're taking a look at Latinos in the military and the struggle for many to rise through the ranks. 
Tom Yamas, anchor of Top Story on NBC News Now, has more. Tom. Jose, for years, thousands of Latinos have enlisted across all branches of the military, but very few have risen through the ranks. In our series, Those Who Serve, we ask a top Pentagon official, what's preventing so many Latinos from being promoted? Ricardo Aponte remembers the highs of being an airman, but can't forget the lows, setbacks that grounded his career. It's a dream of a lifetime. I fell in love with flying uh, back when I was seven years old. But after serving the country for 15 years, that dream came to a screeching halt. I saw no more future in the active duty for me. He was no longer rising in the ranks. He says he wasn't sure why until he looked in the mirror. Do you think the opportunities to hit the right stepping stones of the military didn't come to you because you were Hispanic? Yes. The short answer is yes. Why did you think it had to do with your ethnicity? I have no other reason to think uh, it, it had to do with anything else. Aponte went on to serve in the Air Force Reserve, where he says he received the right training and mentoring to move up, becoming a brigadier general before retiring in 2007. Latinos make up just over 17% of active duty members, but only 8% of the officer corps and 1% of general and flag officers. Right now, there's only one three-star general, no four-star general, and there's never been a Hispanic Secretary of Defense. We're being ignored. Latinos in the military are not being mentored by senior leadership, and the reason is senior leadership. Which brings us into Rittenhouse. It's a microcosm of everything. Democrats are proud, profoundly committed to criminal justice reform for everyone but their enemies. After the 2020 protest movement, all that changed. That radical reform is needed to both policing and the criminal justice system to make the carceral state far less punitive and sprawling became the mainstream view, practically the obligatory view in the Democratic Party politics. One of the most centrist corporatists in the House Democrat caucus is former corporate lawyer Hakeem Jeffries, the fourth-ranking member of the House Democratic leadership and one of the leading candidates, if not the leading one, to replace Nancy Pelosi when she finally abandons her position of the House Democratic leader. Despite his careful centrist image, Jeffries in mid-220 began advocating slogans which just months earlier had been confined to more radical precincts of academic academia and leftist activism. End mass incarceration to fund the prison industrial complex. He said lock up Kyle Rittenhouse and throw away the key. This is why liberal politics has driven in the Trump era by reverence for George W. Bush, ex-FBI director, who they literally sung and danced in homage, craving that he would come to lock up their political enemies for decades. They view political opposition as the worst crime. Every time someone perceived by Democrats as having the wrong ideology faces the criminal justice system, Julian Assange, Russia Gate defendants, nonviolent 1-6 protesters, now Rittenhouse, the entire framework shifts and the carceral state cannot be harsh enough. And he writes on and on because you're seeing it with January 6th. You're seeing it with the FBI going after people that are the enemy with wrong think. This is just astounding, but we've showed it numerous times on the podcast. And one day, everybody's saying the same thing. I want to live in a country where Colin Kaepernick is seen as a hero and Kyle Rittenhouse is seen as a terrorist. I want to live in a country, and it goes on and on. Morgan J. Friedman, Rex Chapman, John Cooper, they all get their talking points. They go out and say it, 
And then they say worse. Burn the fucking city down when he walks. Fucking burn it and hang the fucking judge. Hey, Twitter support, remember when you guys locked my account for quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson? Other people, I might count locked for seven days because I literally said share dressed like an old hoochie. Dude, I had an account suspended because I told someone they needed to reti- needed to retard the timing on their race engine for nitrous use. It was flagged as using derogatory terms against people with disabilities, like advanced and retired are literally what the terms are for engines. This is nonsense, threatening a judge. They did it. They know they're doing it. They know these motherfuckers are out there taking pictures. They know that most of these people will vote to prosecute him because they just don't want their house torn down. And by the media, which is our media jerk-off of the week, you're next. Real quick, Ariva, the judge in this case has commanded a lot of the spotlight with his anger, some controversial rulings, some head-scratching remarks to be kind. Here's what he said leading into yesterday's lunch break. Uh, let's hope for one o'clock. I don't know. The, uh, hope the Asian food isn't coming. It's on, isn't on one of those boats in Long, uh, Long Beach Harbor. Um, but let's uh, aim for one o'clock. While he appeared to be alluding to supply chain issues there and traffic jam of cargo ships, Asian groups took offense. What do you think about the judge's conduct in this trial? I think has been reprehensible from the beginning. Some of his rulings not allowing the prosecution to call the two men that died victims and the man that was shot uh, victims, but allowing the defense to uh, use the term rioters and looters. And on the same day that he makes this clearly bigoted statement uh, that was offensive and should be offensive to Asian Americans, he also you know, applauded one of the defense witnesses, that use of force witness. He called him out as a veteran, uh, you know, applauded him before the jurors, giving the impression that somehow this witness, you know, is demanding of more deference than some of the other witnesses. So I just think he has inserted himself into this trial in a way that is not appropriate for a judge. And he's really become a drama king uh, that has, you know, forced a lot of attention onto him when it really should be on the facts. You bring up the big public policy issue here is, is do we as a country, in effect, allow people from anywhere to show up anywhere else and, and sort of self-appoint themselves sheriff, right, or, or sheriff's deputy. Are there any laws that govern that? I mean, it seems like in this one, beyond the circumstances of the actual shooting, it's just that whether he had a permit for the gun, but are there any laws that bar me from showing up somewhere else and saying, hey, I'm going to help fight crime? Fewer and fewer. Yeah. One of the big changes in state laws over the last two decades are the increasing freedom that is being granted to individuals to carry concealed weapons, to carry publicly, you know, mm-hmm. visible, visible weapons. I mean, it, it, it is such a sea change uh, in, in, how the, in how the law works. And, you know, I was just in Oklahoma the other day, in Arizona. You just see people carrying guns in public yeah. that you didn't used to see. And we also mm-hmm. now have people yeah. like Kyle Rittenhouse who are appointing themselves, in effect, law enforcement officers in difficult situations with no training, and it's a a terrifying result, especially in a case like that. And there's been a pullback from training in some states, right? I mean, Texas is a perfect example. Yes. 
you can you can use yeah. a gun with no training. And the Supreme yes. Court now considering whether whether New York can pass its own law. Whether it's even sort permissible of yeah. to have yeah. those laws. Right. It's judge yelling at a prosecutor or anyone in the courtroom or treating anyone the way that he treats, I think it's problematic. And I don't think it's normal. And I, you know, people, you can decide or not if you think he's biased. Most of the people I've seen on television who analyze, who does some, some analysis of courtrooms, seems to think that there is a bias towards the defense. Usually this judge is very pro-prosecution, and now he's sort of seems to be very pro-defense, treating Kyle Rittenhouse as if he's his grandson. Um, you know, just, just berating the prosecution. No one needs to be berated like that in a courtroom. Now, I understand that judges, attorneys, prosecutors, they have very tough jobs. But does that need to happen? Does he need to make jokes about Asian food not arriving, you know, because it's on a boat in, on Long Beach in California? Whether he was being, you know, racist towards Asians or insensitive or not, he said in one breath that it shouldn't be political and wouldn't allow a question about a witness's uh, bias because a witness works for a far right-wing uh, publication, but that it shouldn't be about politics, but then he's making jokes about the supply chain. It does not compute. I think people see what is happening. So this is the perfect case, this one and the one that's happening in Georgia. These are perfect cases to bring light to what happens in our criminal justice system. And look, when we're, look, we're talking about the role of race, not only in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, but also in the trial of the men who, um, uh, who, who shot, uh, uh, pursued, and one of them shot Murdered. Ahmaud Arbery. Yes, uh, one, one, of, one of them killed Ahmaud Arbery. There's this theme of white wannabe vigilantism that I think encapsulates both of these trials. And I, I wonder what you think about, look, laws aside, how is the defense doing aside? What do you think about just this idea that this is something people do, that in some places this is still okay? Well, it's the same idea as I was saying about the, the judge. It's, this is okay because people are used to it. This is the ultimate entitlement that again, you can insert yourself into a situation with a gun that you're not supposed to be carrying, kill two people, injure, and it is you are made to be a hero by the public. You, you see someone jogging down the street, and you take it into your hands. You think it's your responsibility to stop that person when you're not even sure if they are committing a crime because what? It is your street. It is your town. It is your country. It is the ultimate degree of entitlement when people believe that this is how they're supposed to be. What the right is saying about Kyle Rittenhouse is that, well, the government didn't do its job, so it took a 17-year-old kid to come in and do what was right. That's vigilantism. That's not what people are not supposed to be vigilantes. We're not supposed to be taking um, justice into our own hands. Imagine if every single person in America did that. Imagine if you call for, um, for black men or just black folks to be armed and go out in the streets and you know, do what they think, justice, take it back, remember and what they did to you and slavery, whatever, go and, and take things and do. Imagine if people were condoning that or just doing that. Would there be a different perception in this country about who should and who shouldn't carry guns? Would our gun laws be different? I certainly think so. So there is a double standard, but it is the ultimate. Laura, do you agree? Would you have put him on the stand? 
If I was defense, I would have put him on the stand because, of course, remember the publicity surrounding this trial, there was a lot of a sympathetic media towards him, people who thought about him as essentially a bit of a martyr from this inflection point on racial tension in America, the idea of the amount of sort of GoFundMe-esque aids that came to him. If you want to know why critical race theory exists, the actual law school theory that emphasizes that supposedly colorblind laws in America often still have racially discriminatory outcomes, then look no further than the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Earlier today, the teenager accused of murdering two men and wounding a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, took to the stand in his own defense. And the circumstances are almost built for an actual CRT course. The white, now 18-year-old, faces an almost entirely white jury of his peers, with the exception of one black man. <laughs> At one point... Rittenhouse claimed that the initial victim used threatening language that he did not want to repeat. I feel like I, I was having flashbacks to the George Zimmerman trial, right? I mean, everything from Kyle Rittenhouse using sort of cop speak about trying to stop the threat, saying this sort of really dramatic thing that the person he shot supposedly said that sounded like a gangster movie, you know? And then this whole thing of, you know, he, the whole breaking down and dry heaving in court, that was one thing that we didn't see from Zimmerman, but, you know, making himself the victim. Joy, today the jurors saw what must be the greatest performance of Kyle Rittenhouse's life. He was well prepared by his defense attorneys to disrupt his image as a trigger-happy vigilante who went on a shooting rampage. This is white privilege on steroids. Rittenhouse testified that after he shot all of these people, he approached the cops and told them that he'd been involved in a shooting, and the officers told him, be careful so that you don't get pepper sprayed and go home. Let me just remind people of the names of the victims. Joseph Rosenbaum, who was 36 years old, Anthony Huber, who was 26, Gage Grosskreutz, who's only 27 years old, was injured. These are the victims. These are the people. Um, you've said it's not too early to, to wonder. Um, whether this was really a waste of taxpayer dollar and judicial resources. The families of the mm -hmm. victims, though, obviously, are looking for justice. What do you say to them? I say to them, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, obviously, uh, I don't think he did the best actions by taking a gun and going to that scene. I don't think he was needed. I think he put himself in harm's way and others. That said, that's not what he's on trial for. He's on trial for whether he committed murder, whether he was justified in using force. And I will tell these families, I am so sorry for your loss, but on a legal level, which is the only thing we're analyzing here, he didn't commit these crimes. He proved that he used reasonable force. Let me ask you then, Mark, what this means, what the precedent is set here. Does, does that mean that anyone with a gun can volunteer themselves to help the police on their own accord, right, heavily armed in the midst of protest, et cetera, because that's, in effect, what happened here. There's no precedent that's set. The law has always allowed people to lawfully carry guns and do the right thing. Every case is different, however. So I don't think this case can plausibly be analogized to the next case where the case is going to be fact-sensitive. All we're saying is, number one, in this particular case, Factually, he had a legal right to use deadly force. And secondly, the precedent is a jury was impaneled. They heard the facts. The prosecutor presented his side. The defense got a chance to present their side. There was cross-examination on both sides. 
And the truth seems to suggest that the government failed to prove their case beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. That's the precedent. Right. Well, we'll see how the public takes that precedent as well. Mark Aguilar, thanks so much. There are only so many acceptable losses that white supremacy is willing to accept. So if Derek Chauvin is going to jail, you had best believe that Ahmaud Arbery's murderers, people like Kyle Rittenhouse, are going to be defended with all that this culture has, because they have to make sure that the message is sent, that white, win white men will continue to control these systems and that the rest of us should be living in fear. Look, we have have to be smarter than Sean Hannity, which is not hard to do, frankly. In the court of public opinion, they're really arguing that white men, especially white men with a gun, are allowed and have the space to defend and protect a country and a social order that keeps them at the top and a country that they stole from indigenous folks and built with black people's labor. And I feel zero sympathy uh, for this, this uh, young man who killed these two people. And frankly, when I look at mainstream media accounts that fall for Kyle Rittenhouse, House's tears and that uh, uh, display him like some kind of confused teen or talk about him injuring and murdering people with a gun in the passive voice, they are participating and perpetuating in that same culture of violence. So no New York Times, he did not end up fatally wounding a man. He actively and voluntarily shot and killed him. The media is participating and perpetuating this charade, because as far as I can tell, the only reason why any of this is allowed. Jeffrey, two thoughts, yeah. two thoughts. One, what kind of idiot 17 year old gets a giant gun and goes to a riot? He has no license. He has no training. He thinks he's going to scrub graffiti off with his AR-15. I mean, the stupidity of this is like, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot went wrong. The good news for Kyle Rittenhouse is that he's not on trial for being an idiot. He's on trial for homicide. Right. And in that respect, right. I mostly agree with Joey that this is a tough case for the prosecution because it does seem like it, he has a plausible case mm -hmm. uh, of self-defense. And, you know, if, if it were illegal to be an idiot, the jails would be even freer, even more crowded than they are now. Mm -hmm. Homicide's a different matter, and, you know, he may have a defense. If I was defense, I would have put him on the stand, because, of course, remember, the publicity surrounding this trial, there was a lot of a sympathetic media towards him, people who thought about him as essentially a bit of a martyr from this inflection point on racial tension in America, the idea of the amount of sort of GoFundMe-esque aids that came to his assistance. But in the same time, if I'm the prosecution, I needed to take the stand for the reasons that came through on the cross-examination. Remember, when he was asked questions by his own attorney, you saw the waterworks coming out. He was crying. They had a 10-minute recess. He was overcome with emotion trying to revisit that notion. In but fact, that in recess, fact Laura, forgive back. me for interrupting, but I want to play that moment you just yeah. brought up. When he broke down on the stand, the judge... The head of New York's Black Lives Matter movement promising bloodshed, riots, and fire... If the city's incoming mayor, Eric Adams, follows through on his plan to crack down on violent crime. Eric Adams, New York City's mayor-elect and a former police captain himself, had pledged to bring back a version of the NYPD's anti-crime unit. Under Bill de Blasio, the NYPD disbanded that group last year, and hundreds of officers reassigned amid protests to defund police. All the while, violent crime in the city has soared, and it has not stopped. Even now, just a few examples of that crime. A 37-year-old man says he was beaten by a group of four people outside of a trendy Manhattan restaurant, all because he says he asked them to stop harassing somebody.
A woman beaten inside an elevator at a subway station, her attacker slugging her, throwing her to the ground, and dragging her out by her feet. And a 62-year-old man hit with a baseball bat, stabbed and slashed in midtown Manhattan, not by one random criminal, but instead by a gang of seven violent attackers. These stories and countless others are leaving New Yorkers begging for a bigger police presence, but the Black Lives Matter leader says if the old NYPD comes back, they're taking to the streets. Rafael Mengual, just moments away. But first, we want to go to Brian Yenis in New York City with this story for us. Hey, Brian. Jackie, good afternoon. Despite the threat, New York City's mayor-elect Eric Adams vowed today that New York will, quote, not be a city of rioting and will not burn. Yesterday, Adams met with the co-founder, Hawk Newsom, of the Black Lives Matter chapter here in Greater New York. It was a half-hour meeting, it was cordial, and it was live-streamed on Instagram. Now, BLM laid out their policy demands of Adams for helping the black community, including the expectation that there will be police reform that disbands police unions and audits the NYPD. But unsatisfied with the mayor's lack of guarantees, the BLM leader, Hawk Newsom, made this threat right after the meeting. If they think that they're going to go back to the old ways of policing, then we're going to take to the streets again. There will be riots, there will be fire, and there will be bloodshed. Now, during the height of the violent unrest of the summer of 2020, Newsom said violence is sometimes necessary. Here's how Adams responded today to the, to the threat. We're going to have the backs of our police officers, but we're going to hold them accountable to do their jobs. And so the, uh, if fringe elements want to hurl uh, rhetoric. There's so much wrong there. I'm not even going to break it down. You know it. And we're back into that thing where Anna Navarro, Carl Rittenhouse, Sean Kill, Anthony Uber, 26, Joseph Joazabar, and Andrew Gage Grosner, all criminals, pedophiles, horrible human beings. Think about how much your loved ones have cried real anguish and grief, not crocodile tears. Miriam Webster. The term crocodile tears, a superficial display of anguish, comes from a medieval belief that crocodiles shed tears of sadness when killing their prey. And we're back to Mazi Horano. We're just going to work with the left, change English, be trolls, not be objective. Jesse Kelly, wrap your mind around this. People get invested in trials based on what they think of the accused and the alleged victim. Now they uh, think, now think how angry the communists are at Kyle Rittenhouse for killing a violent pedophile who raped boys. Mm. You got to sound about that on today. The map thing that we talked about ages ago on the podcast. It, yeah, it's back. Tucker, in our intro, I showed you, he's just mocking them all. Rising Serpent, Binger kept asking Drew Hernandez how he could have an opinion if he was a journalist. It's like he just woke up from a coma, never had the chance to discover anything written in CNN, MSNBC, WAPO, and he lists us. What a pathetic attempt by Binger to discredit Drew Hernandez. The guy just films violence from your people. Group of moms. Oh, I'm going to do that one in a second. Sorry. Let me put that on the end. Because it's coming for you. Conservative commentator says Instagram censored her post on Rittenhouse crying. Because she supported it. 
Joe Walsh, per the facts and law, I probably act as self-defense. The facts and the law are what should matter, but this should matter too. Ahmaud Arbery was killed that day in Georgia because he was black. Kyle Rittenhouse survived the night in Wisconsin because he was white. Because there's no racial implication, they have to find one. They got to find one. They're just making it up. Chunk Unger. For all the Kyle Rittenhouse supporters, I assume you guys are cool with Antifa or black militants coming to every right-wing protest heavily armed, and then if one of you provoked them, well, self-defense and all that, I'm against it, but you were guys cool with that, right? And people go, did you watch the summer? They did. People got killed. Antifa killed people in Seattle and Portland. Then the Gage Grosenhauer, when the whole case falls apart because he lied. The fact that they charged him for weapons, and that's not even the law. It's not the law. They charged him, and they didn't even read the law. He didn't violate the law. That's how shit show this is. And then, of course, you got Don Lemon. There's this theme of white wannabe vigilantism that I think encapsulates both of these trials. And I, I wonder what you think about, look, laws aside, how is the defense doing aside? What do you think about just this idea that this is something people do, that in some places this is still okay? Well, it's the same idea as I was saying about the, the judge. It's, this is okay because people are used to it. This is the ultimate entitlement. That, again, you can insert yourself into a situation with a gun that you're not supposed to be carrying, kill two people, injure, and it is you are made to be a hero by the public. You, you see someone jogging down the street, and you take it into your hands. You think it's your responsibility to stop that person when you're not even sure if they are committing a crime because, what, it is your street, it is your town, it is your country. It is the ultimate degree of entitlement when people believe that this is how they're supposed to be. What the right is saying about Kyle Rittenhouse is that, well, the government didn't do its job, so it took a 17-year-old kid to come in and do what was right. That's vigilantism. That's not what people are not supposed to be vigilantes. We're not supposed to be taking um, justice into our own hands. Imagine if every single person in America did that. Imagine if you call for, um, for black men or just black folks to be armed and go out in the streets and, you know, do what they think, justice, take it back, remember, and what they did to you, and slavery, whatever, go and, and take things. and do. Imagine if people were condoning that, or just doing that. Would there be a different perception in this country about who should and who shouldn't carry guns? Would our gun laws be different? I certainly think so. So there is a double standard, but it is the ultimate degree of entitlement. This is what I'm supposed to do because this belongs to me, meaning this street, this town, and this country. And I think it's tough for people to hear that, but it is the absolute truth. I don't walk down the street saying, this is my, I pay taxes here and therefore I, no. If something, if I see someone breaking the law, I call the cops. That's what they're there for. This is, it, it's supposed to be about law and order. This isn't about law and order. This is about unlawful conduct and disorder. Brianna had an amazing conversation with the Reverend William Barber in the last hour about you gotta make it about race what if black guys came out in the street 
They did. You had the NFA or whatever the hell they're called walking around in uniforms, fully kitted out with rifles all over the country. They went from Georgia to Washington. There are no laws changed. Nobody said a fucking thing. Tubin. I wonder what the verdict would be of Rittenhouse if he defended were black 17-year-old. That's all CNN was doing. Media in such disbelief, any leftist blue check would believe Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. They called this guy to see if he'd been hacked. Last night, Bill Ackman. Nary and I watched several hours of Kyle Rittenhouse direct testimony and cross-examination. We came away believing that Kyle is telling the truth and that he acted in self-defense. Helping his community as an EMT and fireman training is removing hate graffiti, putting out fires. Our first-hand impression of Kyle were materially different from those we had previously formed based on media reports and opinion pieces that we had consumed. I've always been frustrated to read an inaccurate press report about a subject I know well, yet somehow I continue to. Believe other articles in the same newspaper about subjects I know less well. Media and political bias are dividing our country and just, it goes on and on. They called him. The media, because they couldn't believe a hardcore blue check would do that. Yet in your mix, CBS brought on the fucking Gujigi guy like he was a fucking hero and he lied. And that's why there's a case. Here's him again. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Engage. I want to start with you. You were shot in the arm by Kyle Rittenhouse during the protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin last year, while the other two men he shot that night died. With Rittenhouse taking the stand, what did you think of his testimony? Well, I think anytime you see your... I'm not playing any more of that fuckhead. People are wondering why the AP has Kyle Rittenhouse trial stories under racial injustice. There are people that literally believed that he shot black people. Then the judge does a supply case joke. An Asian food. That was racist. Your video that you have captured these incidents you call riots, they're very slanted against the people who are rioting. You call them rioters. Joe Lockhart. Turns out that murder can be quite profitable. Rittenhouse received over 500k in donation. Let's break that down. Minnesota Freedom Fund was sponsored by everybody in the left, and they released people that beat and killed people who got released to beat and kill people. One of them stalked the woman he was trying to beat and kill. And that's okay, but we've had people fired, firemen, police chiefs for donating to the Rittenhouse Fund. And they didn't do it because they're politics. They did it because they watched and they believe in the Second Amendment and the right to defense. I have a CCW for the very reason that I'm getting chased by a bunch of career criminals that are promoting racial justice by burning and pillaging and beating people. I'm going to shoot them in the fucking face. Because I have two bad legs, a bad back, bad shoulders, bad hip. I got fucking tennis elbow. I'm fucking broke. I can't whip ass. Lefties have CCWs. Blacks have them. Gays, trannies. 
And and this was the most disgusting, Joy Reid. Let me just remind people of the names of the victims. Joseph Rosenbaum was 36 years old. Anthony Huber, who was 26. Gage Grosskreutz, Gross who's only 27 years old, was injured. These are the victims. These are the people um, that people are... Pedophile, abuser, career criminal. Eli Mistel. I'm going to play this one. Th- this... This one, fuck me. Amy, I don't have a crystal ball, all right? What I know is the law, and what I know is what white people are willing to do to defend white supremacy. If you look at this judge, if you look at his pretrial motions, if you look at his pretrial decisions in this case, remember, Rittenhouse has been in, been in and around the jail since he shot those people in Wisconsin last summer. So if you look at all the decisions that Bruce Schrader has made, they have been heavily balanced and weighted towards Rittenhouse, towards his defense. Um, there, I, I see very few neutral decisions in his history. What we have is a judge who, from my perspective, has prejudged the trial in favor of Rittenhouse and has decided, again, even at the pretrial stage, to use every bit of his power to put his thumb on the scale towards Rittenhouse's side. And that was obvious before the trial started. I think now that the trial is going on, it's a little even more obvious to people how hostile he is to the prosecution, how much he's taking Rittenhouse's side, um, and how he is slanting the whole case. He's basically not allowing the prosecution to put on its case against Rittenhouse. Um, he almost, it's almost like he wants the prosecution to put on a different case um, against Rittenhouse and already has this term the man is, uh, the, the boy is not guilty. So. That's why I said, that's why I was able to say two weeks ago, the boy was going to walk and nothing that's happened in the trial so far has changed my opinion on that. And the issue of not being able to refer to the men who were killed and the other one who was repeatedly shot as victims, though they could be referred to as looters or arsonists if the defense um, proves that. So here's the thing, Amy. any one of his decisions you could defend, right? Any one of his decisions, if you take it in isolation, makes sense. But this is actually one of the one of the things that racists do, right? It's one of it's one of the fights that we always have trying to explain what racism is to people. Because if you look at individual decisions, individual decisions, you can say like, oh, well, that wasn't racially biased, or that decision wasn't racially biased. But when you put them in, when you look at them all together, when you look at the totality of his decisions, right? So it's not just saying that these people can't be called victims. Look, legally speaking, they were victims of homicide. That's just a fact, but fine. You want to say they can't be called victims because of the nature of the self-defense defense? All right, you can kind of defend that decision. But then he says they can be called looters, rioters, and arsonists, which is ridiculous. The, the surviving victim hasn't been charged with looting, rioting, or arson. So calling him a victim is just factually inaccurate. So calling him a writer is just factually inaccurate. So you see what I'm saying? When you put the one and one together, you end up with two. When you put one plus one plus one plus one plus one together, you end up with five. And that's what that's that's what that's what Schrader is. He is he has made a series of decisions. Each one perhaps may be individually defensible, but in totality lead to the impression of a biased racist judge with his Trump rally cell phone um, uh, that is trying to get Rittenhouse. uh... I know the law. Well, so did the prosecutor, and it's clearly obvious they didn't follow it. 
And then you get into these that are just amazing. Just amazing. And this is all over Twitter. I am highly educated and reasonably perceptive. And I, it was only today that I learned that Kyle Rittenhouse victims were white. My progressive bubble made me seem like a very different case than it is. Let me add a few points. All my family friends are progressively, and I recently woke up to their hypocrisy and MSMBS. I admit I hadn't paid much attention to the case. If you hear someone call a white supremacist enough time, you believe it. The president of the United States called him a white supremacist. You realize you need to question everything you've been told, which is what is keeping me very, very busy lately. And it should have been, it should not have been used the term victims. Somebody right below it. I did not know this. Billiam, I was pretty shocked to learn many of the details over the past couple weeks, too. Once I watched all the video footage and learned some other details, I was like, oh, my God. I was also, at the time, in a progressive bubble. I've changed a lot since then. Another one. A kind of funny pattern has emerged as it relates to liberal acceptance of inconvenient facts. First, there is widespread denial of the alleged problem. The only ones raising the issue are bad faith right-wingers. Then one extremely annoying person who is vaguely associated with the left, Carville, Larry Summers, will say, liberals need to take this problem seriously. Then... The political indicators start to show that this thing is actually a problem. First it's polls, then it's a bad election result or two. Now the frustration is that the right-wing BS talking point has gone mainstream. At that point, the professional center-left contrarians come in thinking Matt Galazian and Jonathan Che to tell us we really do not need to start taking this problem. We do we really do need to start taking this problem seriously. It's not just right-wing BS. That convinces maybe half of Twitter, myself included, to grudgingly admit that the problem exists, but also be extremely annoyed at having to give credit to legitimately awful people who were right in the first place. The final stage of acceptance is when a less contrarian-influenced center-left voice like Chris Hayes and Eric Zerkleim admits that the thing is a problem. For example, this dynamic C, inflation, CRT-related issues in schools... They hid it. They hide everything. They, they don't want you to know stuff. Because if you know the truth, they can't push their narrative. Ian Michael Chong. This is Joseph Rosenbaum, the first man shot and killed in Kyle Rittenhouse. He was convicted for raping five separate children ages 9 to 11 and spent over a decade in prison, which is prison he commit while in prison he committed over 40 violations including assault on staff, which the left has a problem with because they think everybody who's in the criminal justice system is a piece of shit. Tucker Carlson Nails it. A rapist called Joseph Rosenbaum was released from a mental hospital and then went directly to join the mob that was burning downtown Kenosha. Once he got to the riot, Rosenbaum saw Kyle Rittenhouse and immediately threatened to kill him. Rosenbaum then chased Rittenhouse and tried to pull the gun from his hands. When he did that, Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. So Joseph Rosenbaum died as he had lived, trying to touch an unwilling minor. There on their team and anybody that steps out you think it's just Kyle Rittenhouse it's not it's anybody that doesn't play ball with them as we go into our everything is racist you don't think like them you're racist 
This is an insert. I've never done one of these, but I'm going to do it. You're going to see this before we go into Woke. I'm just going to slap it on in. So I saw this online, and I could not complete the show because I shut the computer or shut the program out, and all of a sudden I went, oh, I forgot this. But this is some scary-ass shit. And this is what we covered years ago about minor attracted person. And it's happening. It's happening now. So even though I won't talk about it after this little video, I had to make sure I shoved this in somewhere. So it's going to be out of order. It's going to sound weird. But I wanted you to hear it from somebody other than me. That yes, they do believe minor attracted persons should be a protected class and there's nothing wrong with wanting to hump little kids. Maybe that's why they defend the people that tried to kill Rittenhouse, but he killed them. Thanks so much for that question. Um, I use the term minor attracted person or MAP uh, in the title and throughout the book for multiple reasons. Um, first of all, because I think it's important to use terminology for groups that members of that group want others to use for them. Um, and MAP advocacy groups like Before You Act um, have advocated for use of the term MAP. Um, they've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the term pedophile, they automatically assume that it means a sex offender. Uh, and that isn't true, and it leads to a lot of misconceptions about attractions toward minors. Um, I've definitely heard the idea that you brought up, though, that the use of the term minor attracted person suggests that it's okay to be attracted to children. Uh, but using a term that communicates who someone is attracted to doesn't indicate anything about the morality of that attraction. And non-offending maps, by definition, do not abuse children, so their behaviors are moral. Um, but they're still being subjected to this same idea that they're bad people. Um, stigma against MAPs is a problem in part because it makes MAPs think that they're monsters. Um, that's really problematic in terms of MAP well-being. Um, it's really hard to cope when you think you're a terrible person uh, because you have attractions that you can't change. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. You know, I've adopted the attitude of the great Negro at the time, pitcher in the Negro Leagues, went on to become a great pitcher in the pros into the Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. His name was Satchel Paige. Well, former U.S. President Barack Obama set to talk climate change in just hours from now when he addresses the COP26 summit in Scotland. And Tuvalu's foreign minister is looking to make a bold statement on what's at stake when it comes to the climate crisis by speaking from the sea. There's the visual. We're back with the details in just a moment.
crucial COP26 climate summit in Glasgow is now entering its second and final week and negotiations on key issues are expected as countries are being urged to make ambitious commitments. In the coming hours, former US President Barack Obama is set to deliver remarks on the threat of climate change. Participants will also hear from Tuvalu's uh, foreign minister this week. He recorded his statement behind a podium in knee-deep seawater in an effort to highlight the impact of rising sea levels on Pacific nations like his own. And in just a few hours, former U.S. President Barack Obama will deliver remarks about the threat posed by climate change. And so, too, will the foreign minister of uh, Tuvalu, who will highlight the impact of rising water levels by standing in the water. So how important will their contributions to this be, do you think? Well, I think their voices are very important. And there are so many voices, world leaders, and actually, I think probably more importantly, the youth voice. We've seen these incredible protests in Glasgow, both on Friday when uh, young people went to the streets and then on Saturday when literally the whole of Glasgow closed down because people of all ages came out and said, this is enough. OK, we need to deal with climate change. And so therefore, adding these two voices, uh, President of Tuvalu and President Obama, I think is just adding to that. And again, what I'm really hoping is that certain leaders, because a lot of actual countries are on board and are trying to decarbonize, but of course there's some that are actually trying to undermine the negotiations. Yeah, that's an important point, isn't it? Because some world leaders do appear to grasp the emergency our planet faces right now, but many don't, including the world's biggest carbon polluter, China, also Russia and Saudi Arabia. Their leaders not even bothering to attend COP26. How much does their lack of participation... Well, I have to disagree with you there. They may uh, be a bit more articulate in their approach, but their policies were just as damaging. They may not be as clumsy as Donald Trump, but their policies still supported a system of white supremacy. I could go through all of those presidents you just named and pick out specific pieces of policy that were damaging to folks who look like you and me, Congressman, to be quite frank. But l let me just ask Aaron a quick question, and I promise I'll come back to you. Um, Aaron, you know, a bigger part of this frustration for me, I think, is uh, the way some of our colleagues handle questioning and, you know, in journalism. And you and I have talked about this when you see these journalists talk to parents, which mostly mean white parents, and they ask them questions about CRT, or they ask them questions about things happening in society, and never ask a follow-up question. They never introduce race. When they're talking to a room full of white people, all of us sitting at home are saying, race is the thing that you're not talking about. Um, that is the thing that needs to change, Erin. Um, why do you think in our, our profession that journalists are not raising this as an issue? Well, uh, journalists are also part of uh, our society that is not comfortable talking about race. I think that journalists that do have a track record of talking about issues of race are able to do it when it, when it intersects with things like politics and really drill down uh, when somebody says something like, you know, education is a priority for me as a voter. And by the way, we also need to expand the idea of who gets to be a voter uh, and who gets to be a voter that cares about education, right? Like we shouldn't just be asking white parents when they say they care 
about education, what that means to them. Two things that are really important to remember in this conversation for journalists, but really for all of us, Tiffany. Uh, President Biden's campaign pitch was to restore the soul of America, right, and to unify the country. So we need to keep constantly talking about how that is going, frankly. Uh, President Biden also vowed to address uh, racial inequality as a pillar of this administration. Look, we already know that the GOP is prioritizing race in this current climate. Now we know how they plan to do it. This cycle, it's white parents versus everybody. And this is why it's important, to Carlos's point, to really hear from all kinds of voters over the next year, including conservatives, whom we should be constantly asking whether they are on board with the strategy of a racial playbook and why. Not to empathize, but to be clear about where the electorate is going. I mean, you brought up that yeah. Pew poll that was showing kind of global attitudes around uh, race, racial divisions, and political divisions uh, around the globe. Uh, developed countries understand discrimination is a major problem and that where they live is only the beginning of the conversation. Like, where do folks think this discrimination is coming from? Who do they think right. is doing it? Are they doing anything about it? And to what extent are political and racial divisions one and the same in these other countries as they absolutely are here? You hear, I have to tell you, my brother is a truck driver um, and he drives across the country. And it's very uh, nerve wracking to me uh, when he's on the road um, because uh, it's just it feels like a dangerous industry. But you're trying to disrupt that and bring more people who look like us to the industry. Tell us why. Yes, ma'am. First of all, thank you for having me this morning. And yes, we are. And we say we're not building truck drivers, but safe CMB operators, folks that can get back to their home whenever they're done with their ship. That's the most important part, ma'am. Well, how can the industry be more welcoming? Because I have to tell you, I talked to a lot of truck drivers and uh, preparing for this segment. And um, most of these truck drivers are people of color. And they talked about, um, you know, hearing some of the racism um, over the CB. Um, you know, this is, again, an industry populated um, by a lot of white men over the age of 55. Um, this group of people overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Um, some people have talked about, you know, aggressive truck drivers uh, cutting them off or not being helpful. Um, so obviously, the more populated it is with people of color, I think you'll see less of that. But how can you encourage people to come and disrupt this space when it seems a bit unwelcoming? Well, I think just what you're doing, getting uh, myself as a black female out there and letting people know I drove for almost eight years and yes, ran into lots of racism, but however, was out there to do my job. And I think that uh, women are definitely the more we can just get the news out to them that trucking is an industry that will not only help them to get further in life with their family and all of that and present the package to them appropriately, regardless of what anybody else has to say, they're going to be in charge, they're going to be the person behind that steering wheel doing the job every single day and making it happen. So we just need to get the word out there. And I appreciate you for helping us get this word out. The women will be able to close this deficit if we can just let them know, give them the support so, that they need to get into the industry. Yeah. Um, so I there are many people who look at you and they say you are a, strimble, uh, a symbol of representation, uh, of strength and truth. But you know you have your critics as well. How can we have, as a nation, a discussion about race that moves the discussion forward? 
I think one you have to begin with the truth. Um, so much of the attacks against the 1619 Project and what we're seeing is, you know, laws that are trying to stop the teaching of more accurate histories uh, are because we haven't wanted to confront the truth uh, in this country. The truth is often painful, um, but it is in confronting that that we are able to actually heal and move on. So I think people have to come with an open mind. We have to come with vulnerability. We have to come with, I think, um, really an understanding that we don't know everything that there is to know. And many of us have been taught this history really poorly and that we're not responsible personally for what happened in the past. But we are responsible for learning about it and learning from it and trying to do better uh, right now. And that's why you want in schools, because you weren't expecting this. When 1619 Project came out, many schools added it to their curriculum. There were parents and others that objected to that. Yes. Why is it important for young people in particular to learn about American history? Absolutely. I, I talk about in the preface that I first came across the date 1619 in a black studies elective that I took when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. And just having that small window open to this whole world of history that I didn't know changed my whole life. So I think children are, um, they are able to understand complex stories and nuanced histories and it is empowering uh, to actually be taught a history that reflects the country that we see. So I think that it's so important for young people. I have an 11 year old daughter. Right. Um, she can understand this and and when you look at the world and you see all of the polarization and all of the tension um, these narratives we've learned don't explain that and when you give students a more accurate accounting of as you said American history not black American mm -hmm. history but American history I think it is empowering for them to go out into the world and it has taken somewhat of a toll I'm glad that you're doing well sometimes the messenger welcome to the Republican Party of 2021 our future dystopia is already here. The Republican Party is all aboard when it comes to stoking the anxieties of conservative white suburbanites to maintain control, especially now that Glenn Youngkin rode a wave of fragile feelings to victory in Virginia last week on the boogeyman of critical race theory and buoyed by a little book banning. Can you imagine, as somebody who wasn't a, pub a Republican statewide elected official, coming into office with your platform and your closing argument being, I will ban Toni Morrison books. At that point, don't you then have to follow through, right? You took the Trumpian pill, you gotta swallow it now, right? So how far do you think this winds up going? Youngkin is now tied to this book banning, anti-blackness, anti-history platform. He played games, he played footsie with far right-wing dangerous Trumpism. I mean, there was a treason flag, that the, one of the flags that flew right. at the Capitol on the insurrection day, flew at one of his rallies. He didn't have a problem with that. He didn't have a problem with having Trump's endorsement. He didn't, he's getting like credit for supposedly backing for Trump. He never did that. And he, you know, quietly was like, wink, 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 I'm with you. Well, I was gonna say it's openly an attack on books that have to do with slavery and race, but it's also a very side swipe attack on the LGBT community too. Cause they keep on saying pornography because that's the other piece of what they want to get rid of. All those parents worried about pornography in the literature Kids ain't worried about pornography and literature. You better take your son's phone and take a look at what that bad boy is downloading. You Baby? Better, you better, you better Hello? Go, go to go to that go to that uh, that school that school dance and see what they're doing out behind the school. Baby, come on now. These parents acting like they were teenagers. <laughs> Hello. And they don't have their kids' passwords, so even if they got the phone, they couldn't see what's on it because they don't even know what they can. We begin the readout tonight with a stark warning, on a much more serious note, on a stark warning that the insurrection on our democracy is still alive.
and sadly thriving. The slow rolling insurrection is now unfolding in front of our very eyes. And we should all be very concerned. The attacks on our democracy are happening state by state, with Republicans taking steps to allow them to fraudulently claim victory in future elections. Then there's the fear-mongering over issues of race and boogeymen like critical race theory to scare particularly white voters toward the GOP. We saw how that played out in Virginia. We also see Republicans trying to gerrymander their way into far more seats than they deserve based on the demographics and the census results. As of now, it's basically an apartheid democracy in Georgia. They are most likely simply waiting for what they believe will happen because they are engineering for it to happen. That they cannot lose, right, in, the, in 2022, they are sort of trying to bioengineer Republican victories. They don't care about our democracy, the Constitution, the rule of law. Americans, all they care about is themselves covering for themselves and this one man sitting in Florida eating cheeseburgers all the time. Sort of autocracy 101 that the autocrats party is not subject to the laws, right? The laws don't apply to them. And so if you have a political party that at this point believes that they can simply steal enough elections and rig enough elections for themselves such that no one can ever hold them accountable, then reintroduce the autocrat, put him in power or whoever else they decide to want, they want to make president. They're tired of the orange guy down there and simply control the process, that means that we are an insurrectionist society. We are in the slow rolling insurgency, and that is a series of insurrections, political actions, battling and taking the fights off of the, 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 the halls of power, moving them into the states, into the streets through populist movement or through political or terrorist action to create chaos for a government with the intent the tipping point world leaders convene to combat the worsening global climate crisis as extreme weather events grow more frequent and deadly one of the hundreds who died in a brutal heat wave i brought extra water and implored him to drink it i could tell he was gravely affected by the heat just south of them on the same coast in the same summer the Kaldor fire took chris sheehan's home Everything that we owned, everything that we've built, is gone. The only thing that's left standing is a chimney. Four lives, among millions more, distorted and lost this year alone from the impacts of climate change. A warming atmosphere isn't the sole cause of these disasters. But the evidence grows clearer every day that fossil fuel emissions make these calamities more frequent, more severe, more deadly. Global temperatures have also continued to rise. The last seven years have been the warmest seven years on record. It's time to say enough. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. And that is not a world that would be remotely recognizable to those of us sitting here today, already reeling from the effects of a 1.1 degree Celsius world. Unrecognizable to us. Yes. Right now, climate change is forcing massive migrations. One recent analysis said climate-related events drive twice as many people from their homes as war and violence. There's no doubt that Joe Biden is in Glasgow right now with a weakened hand. Last week, a major climate tool was taken out of his toolbox by Joe Manchin. The Build Back Better has some elements that are still potent climate tools, but 
we know that Manchin is still dubious about that. So it's very difficult for the United States to cajole other nations and say, act boldly on this issue when we have a hard time doing it here in the U.S. From Africa to Antarctica to South America, the Thompson's expeditions have taken them to some of the most extreme remote locations on the planet. And they both admit, at first, they didn't set out to study climate change. I mean, we started in the 1970s. In the 1970s, people were concerned about the Earth getting colder and going into another ice age. And you thought, oh, this is a growth opportunity. <laughs> yeah, right. We had little idea what we were getting into. But Bangladesh represents one of the great cruelties of climate change. Those that have done little to cause the problem are paying the biggest price. Bangladesh emits less than half of 1% of the global greenhouse gases that are warming the planet, but suffers disproportionately from that warming. This low-lying country has always been vulnerable to flooding, but climate change has intensified storms, pushed saltwater further inland, and now driven an estimated 10 million people from their homes. In those 30 years, emissions have continued to go up, temperatures have continued to go up. From the northeast to the midwest, meteorologists predict a cold winter, which could make it an expensive one, too. You have to heat your home and, you know, you just have to pay the higher cost. Prices have already jumped dramatically. Natural gas up 130% from a year ago, heating oil up 59%. And prices could move even higher as the months get colder. From Americans warming their homes to filling their tanks. Now some lawmakers are calling on President Biden to tap into the nation's strategic petroleum reserve. But experts say the nation is largely at the mercy of the global energy markets, and the reserve is only meant for short-term emergencies. So, Tom, winter is approaching. People are probably wondering what ways they can try to save money on those home heating bills. What do you know? Well, I was really surprised by the amount of money you can save on your heating bill if you simply turn down the thermostat by about eight hours a day or so. If you turn it down seven to 10 degrees, you can save up to 10% on your heating bill. So that's pretty significant. You can consider heavier curtains on the windows, right? You uh, mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be able to get it today? Because mm -hmm. I don't qualify? Yeah, what, if I, what if I, like, smoke and vape? I heard that was a... No? no. no. Okay. But if I were black and Hispanic, then I'd be able to qualify. Okay, I'm being <laughs> denied medical service because of my race. Is that? Meet the criteria. Yeah. So what I do, I go around and make sure everyone meets the criteria. Okay. So yeah, that's the criteria that was set for. If you were 65, you'd be good. But nope, you're healthy and you're um, healthy and no medical condition. So research showed that you should be able to fight off COVID. Maybe it's for someone else, may preclude them a little more, make them a little more susceptible to being worse than COVID. Any questions? <laughs> uh, no, I guess not. He said Negro. That's all I got to say. All the rest of it is just bullshit. Twitter erupts because he said it. Tommy Christopher, like the rest. This is literally, no, Joe Biden did not refer to Satchel Paige as a Negro during Veterans Day speech. The president obviously began saying, great Negro League pitcher, and then paused and shifted. It was just an accident. It's not real. Sorry, my allergies are garbage, so sorry. I'm going to put some Vicks on my nose so I can breathe. Oh, it's freaking garbage in the South now. Fall. Fall pollen.
But here's the reality. This is in uh, Scottsdale. They had gone after, had groups go after parents because they're speaking out. Scottsdale Unified School District Administration is scrambling to do damage control for a group of mothers discovered governing board president Jan Michael Greenberg, if you got a hyphen name, you're a douchebag, had access to Google Drive full of personal information, documents, and photos of about 47 people, including children. An email sent out Wednesday evening by the SUSD Communication Office sought to assure families that the personal educational data is safe, while the district also solely blamed the discovered digital dossier on Mark Greenberg. And it's all because people are going after them. So they're in the right. The people that believe planting trees is racist. That's a Vice article. And then you have the CRT toucan or the can-can. It's a dance. They say there is no CRT. Then they explain what CRT is. Then they say that they're not teaching it. But then they say, yeah, we are. And what's wrong with teaching it? And it goes around and around and around. Critical race theory. It's an approach to teaching of American history and civics that argues systemic racism is woven into American law and institutions. Critical race theory is not being taught um, in K-12 schools. None of those states are teaching critical race theory in their K-12 schools, man. But it doesn't exist. Your sixth grader is not being taught critical race theory. Critical race theory is not taught in elementary schools or middle school or high schools. It's taught in law school. Critical race theory, which isn't real. Just to be clear, it's not It's not in the curriculum. All this CRT stuff is trumped up dog whistling. We do not teach critical race theory here in Virginia. It has never been taught. It not being taught in schools, that's, that's 100% correct. The whole purpose of critical race theory is to provide Americans with a way to understand the legacy of racism, even though those stories sometimes hurt. I'm going to ban critical race theory. That is like us banning the ghost. It's not, it's not, it's not. Our Black Lives Matter pledge, our faculty members take hold of this. Critics portray as sort of judging people intrinsically as being racist or not. Black babies who are still in the womb because of the kind of health care that their mothers do not get simply because they are black. That's why we're counting on you all, you young people coming up, to stop all this madness. Critical pedagogy is in schools. We do have critical race theory in how we teach. There isn't any critical race theory. But there is zero doubt that Republicans like Glenn Youngkin use the invented issue of critical race theory to try to scare the crap out of parents. Hey, it clearly worked. There, there, there's no denying that. It's a playbook that Republicans have washed, winced, and rinsed, and reused time and time again on a number of issues using the issue of race as a weapon, it is pure racism masquerading as a policy debate because as you pointed out, critical race theory is not taught in any K through 12 school in America. There is no teacher out there that's trying to force people and students to think that there's something wrong with them because they're white. But we also cannot ignore the reality that our country is founded by a bunch of white people 
privileged, rich, white people, and that has colored the way that our system has been set up, which is why there are so many blind spots in our education, in our justice system. This is just a reality. It's a fact. But there is truth to the reality that Democrats need to understand how to talk to people about education. And I want to tell you something. If in the aggregate, Republicans want to make every election going forward about education, about who's most interested in teaching our students, in funding our schools, in narrowing the achievement gap, we are happy to have that debate because time and again, Republicans are the ones who have voted against measures that would improve education right. in America, that would pay I, teachers more. I got to get Scott in here to reply. Yeah, hey, listen, I don't have much, I don't have much to add because I'm for Kirk for Democrat National Committee spokesperson. I hope Kirk gets hired to say this over and over and over again. If you want to tell parents, hey, what you're, you're crazy. Don't believe your own eyes. Don't believe your. Hey, by all means, go ahead. If you want to throw in with Randy Weingarten and close on the on the on the on the, on the school court, by all means, go ahead. Hold on, hold on, Scott, really quick. Kurt, hold on one second. I'll give you I'll give you a second to to say your piece, really quick. Scott, are you wrapping up? Because I got to get Kurt in to to respond to that. Hey, listen. Here's the deal. Republicans, for the first time in my political career, figured out that education matters to voters and they were able to talk about it in a way that met voters where they were. Democrats, on the other hand, figured out how to throw in with the teachers union and all the, you know, the education people who want parents to be treated like common criminals at school board meetings. And we saw where the voters lined well, up. Pam, you just interviewed a bunch of moms who were ultra concerned. And whether you have a kid in the school system or not, if you're a taxpayer or just a citizen, you have a right to know what's going on in these schools, what's okay, going quickly, on in the classroom. Okay, quickly, I gotta get Kurt in, because we're running out of time. Things, Kurt. They shouldn't be taught. Scott made uh, some, some serious claims there, so go ahead, Kurt. Well, Scott, Scott, unsurprisingly, is lying and misrepresenting what I said. No one in the Democratic Party <laughs> is saying teachers can't be involved in education. No one in the Democratic Party. They got caught. Face it, your little plan to keep us locked down forever so that we'd all fucking vote for Biden? Parents saw what you're teaching. Marine Corps is going to change the way they promote people because they're too white. So then they write an article, and there's a big fight that I'm not even covering with Kamala, who's useless, and Biden, and da-da-da-da-da. So CNN does actually journalists for the first fucking time. This written hit piece on CNN today on VP Kamala Harris sent to millions was racist and misogynistic. If you're allowed to go unchecked, you are failing her. President Biden, this country at a time when Trump and Republicans are trying to burn this country to the ground. Trump, 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 Trump. What the fuck's Trump got to do everything? Then you get to Cori Bush talking about she was shot at. When we marched at Ferguson, white supremacists will hide behind a hill near Michael Brown and shoot at us and never face consequences. Kyle Rittenhouse. None of that's true. Texas Tribune, Tribune, the coming-of-age memoir, Gender Queer, has become a lightning rod in Texas, but the scrutiny over school library books, which is largely being driven by white parents, is part of a nationwide political phenomenon. They try to excuse getting caught teaching how to give blowjobs with pictures of little boys sucking teenage dick. That's a book. Yeah, it's racism. Yeah, okay. Every gun owner has premeditated the killing of another human. That's the point of a gun. So every gun death is murder, regardless of the state of the mind of the gun owner. That's where they want to go because they don't like guns. They don't like cars. They don't like eating meat. They don't like you having your own opinion. Stay in line. 
But the problem is most of these people are so fucking duped. Who's coming up with CRT? It wasn't motherfucking Hannah Jones. It's a bunch of white people virtue signaling. As well as a roadmap for undoing white womanhood and the distraction, destructiveness it, it, it causes. Mm -hmm. And I love that, this idea of undoing white womanhood and the destructiveness it causes. Can you um, unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many ways that we who are raised to be white women in this culture um, have, have all these kind of structures built around us that are geared for our comfort, our reassurance, our, um, you know, feeling safe in society. Author and HuffPo contributor wanted to undo white womanhood and destructiveness it causes. She thinks white women feel safe in society is problematic. This is intersectionality. It is. NPR shows you what intersectionality is. Michelle Wu, an Asian American, is the first woman and first person of color elected to lead city. While many are hailing it as a turning point, others see it as a more of a disappointment that three black candidates didn't win and some Asian bitch did. We paid for that. We paid for it. And if you want to view, the view is intersectionality, which Greg Gutfeld did a really funny thing like Joy, Whoopi, and Sunny. And they're all just hateful bitches. Okay, Jed. So let's discuss. Yeah. Let's address the elephant in the room because you were supposed to join. You yeah. were supposed to join us in the studios weeks ago, but you couldn't because ABC has a very strict policy. Uh, you can't get into this building unless you're fully vaccinated. Everybody in this room knows that and is vaccinated. But you made a conscious decision not to get the vaccine. Now the CDC says a person is ten times less likely to be hospitalized from COVID and eleven times less likely to die if they've gotten the vaccine okay so why didn't you get it yeah so my story is a little bit unique i'll share that first before i get into those cbc numbers but remember we have I only actually a have certain a medical... amount of time jed if you want to get everything yeah, in i have right. so i want to i want to let people know why i'm not there i have a medical exemption to the vaccine that's been written by my infectious disease vaccinated specialist in new york city that's been co-signed by three other doctors i'm not a candidate for this vaccine i also have sky high multi-tiered multifaceted natural immunity very very high that has also been proven it has been shown and it is substantiated by letters from these doctors so for me personally this vaccine poses a greater risk than a benefit i'm also not a risk to any of you i know there's been a lot of debate about that but i have these doctors who've gone on record with that as well so my point about all of this is that I am not anti-vax. What I really want is for people to make these decisions for themselves. I want every one of you to sit with your family members, to sit with your trusted doctors and to say, what is the best decision for me? However, I do oppose mandates. I oppose them on the fact that let's look at the science. This is a vaccine that was created to prevent severity of disease and to prevent hospitalizations. Now we can have a whole debate on that in itself, but the vaccine does not prevent you from getting COVID and does not prevent you from transmitting COVID. Oh my COVID. goodness. 
reality. Well, no, and we have that's seen that. not so. Come on. No, You've been at Fox TV too You don't have long. to enjoy. You don't have to listen to me on that. You don't have to listen to me. You can listen to the director of the CDC. You can look at the CDC's website. That is why masks were reinstated for people who were vaccinated. Because they said, and they admitted, they came out and said, this for this Delta variant, Transmission I is going I, to be a thing for vaccinated and you know unvaccinated what, people. I'm not opposed to the vaccine, you know what, but Jen? I am opposed to the mandate. 762,000 people have died from COVID, including right. Manny's in-laws. And I just, we've been friends a long time, but I just, uh, Manny's parents, I just don't understand why you would choose to prioritize your personal freedom over health and safety of others. And so I just, I just, I just so really again, don't think that we again, should allow Sonny, this kind of misinformation again, um, on, again, on our Sonny, website. Again, Sunny, I am We've had the United States Surgeon General debunk. Yes, I heard what he said. Everything that you've just said, and I just don't think no. we should we should so a, when you allow have this kind of misinformation on, all, on our air. I'm, yeah. I'm really sorry, Sunny, my First of all, I'm really sorry, Sunny, my First friend. of all, I would say to you as a friend, what I just said to you is, I am prioritizing my health. And people talk about the common Over good. Over the health and safety of other people. You're not going to have a common good people. if you're not prioritizing your own health. You Over have the, the Surgeon General. General. This should sound very. This should sound very familiar to you, Jed. This should sound very familiar to you. We got to go to break. And so I have to say uh, thanks to Jed Follow and I Wheeler. You can Follow buy Jed's book, Dear Hartley, starting today. And everyone in the audience, you're each going home with a copy of it. How dare you have your own opinion? You can't have an opinion on anything. No, get in line. The best part about it, at least I hope, even though they're going to try to steal the election like they always do, New Democratic strategists plan to get aggressive on critical race theory, saying Republicans are putting politicians in charge of classroom and white supremacists in charge of curriculum with money. They call it a racist dog whistle and a lie, but those messages haven't helped Democrats tamp down the uproar Republicans are fueling over critical race theory. Now a misused catch-all term for teaching on race and diversity in K-12 schools is firing up protest school boards. Virginia, Governor-elect Youngkin exploited the term. So just double down. Do it. Mm-hmm. Do it. Because every time you guys open your mouth, you're proven to be the frauds you are. This is a Democratic representative. As a friend said, I think it should be equated with burning a flag. In essence, that's what they are doing. Let's go, Brandon, is like chanting overrated at a team even after they kicked your ass. Let's go, Brandon. You say it's okay to burn the flag. Then 538, which is usually objective, why white voters with racist views often still support black Republicans. WAPO, this week, white supremacists find a new platform to spread hate, a federal courtroom in Charlottesville. Because they can't let that go. And then you see how they do tuition. Students of color minus Asians. White are Asians. Look at the rates. Let me see if I can blow. I'm going to blow this up over my face. It's almost five times. $800 fall 2017. 1025 falls 2021. 3832 for Asian or whites, but black people don't have to pay that much because of racism and shit. So you're charging via race.
which is racist. It's all racist. And the best part of all of this, because they live in a parallel universe that isn't based on biology, it's not based on anything that makes any sense to the common person. And they preach about the fucking craziest shit in the world. It's nonstop, doesn't make sense. You're trying to connect the dots on everything. They go out every day and go to the podium or go to a speech or go on CNN or in WAPO or New York Times and just fucking lie more than Trump ever thought he should. Close the port in China. It can delay shipment of furniture or clothing, reduce worldwide supply and driving up prices here in America. And the irony is people have more money now because of the first major piece of legislation I passed. You all got checks for $1,400. You got checks for a whole range of things. If you're a mom and you have kids under the age of seven, you're getting 300 bucks a month. And if it's over, over seven to 17, you're getting $360 a month. Like wealthy people used to do when they get back tax returns. It changed people's lives. But what happens if there's nothing to buy, you got more money, you compete for getting it there, it's like it creates a real problem. So on the one hand, we're facing new disruptions to our supplies. At the same time, we're also experiencing higher demand for goods because wages are up as well as as well as people have money in the bank. And because of the strength of our economic so everything you're paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. So folks, we're going to build the first ever national network of electric vehicle charging stations all across the country. IBW is going to put in 500,000 charging stations across the country. And guess what? That's in the Recovery Act. Now, excuse me, that, that, that's in the Build Back Better bill, which is not going to raise taxes one single cent. It's totally paid for, totally paid for by making taxes work for people who make over 400 grand and just do their fair share. I'm a capitalist, man. You should be able to be a millionaire or billionaire if you can, but pay your fair share. Pay something along the line. I'm going to get America off the sidelines on manufacturing. The manufacturing. And women deal with sexism all the time, but Hillary Clinton is really unique in this regard, uh, certainly during her first run for the presidency. And you've certainly experienced that. Have we made any progress in the way we cover women in politics? Uh, it's one of the reasons why I chose to recount in the book in fair amount of detail. I talk about in the White House, us not even as women, just not even expecting uh, anything more. We just were grateful to have have the work. But in the 2000 Senate campaign, the first time I had witnessed what it was like, what women were up against in politics at the debate that uh, she had against the then Republican congressman who marched over the debate uh, stage to wave a piece of paper in her hand. And then in 2008, you know, Andrea, I don't even think we knew how to deal with the sexist comments. We would laugh and giggle it off just nervously because we just assumed it was the price we had to pay to be in the game. And then in 2016, all of the outside forces that affected that race. But in part, you know, there was a, a lot of sexist uh, and sexism uh, that uh, she had to deal with. It's hard and it continues to be hard. And it's one of the reasons I spent so much time in the book talking, just sharing 
the experiences of being on the inside and what it was like um, to, to, to have some of those uh, moments. And then, uh, I will never forget that day, I, I think it was a trip to Iowa, 11 days before the 2016 election, and then you get the word on the floor. But what we're seeing in the laboratory after people get these shots, we're seeing a very concerning locked-in, low profile of these important killer T cells that you want in your body. It's almost a, re a reverse HIV. In HIV, you lose your helper T cells, your CD4 cells. In this virus, post-vaccine, what we're seeing is a drop in your killer T cells, your CD8 cells. And what do CD8 cells do? They keep all other viruses in check. What am I seeing in the laboratory? I'm seeing an uptick of herpes family viruses. I'm seeing um, herpes, I'm seeing shingles, I'm seeing mono. I'm seeing a huge uptick in human papillomavirus uh, in the cervical biopsies and the cervical pap smears in women. In addition to that, there's a, a little infectious you know, bump that kids get called molluscum contagiosum. What do you need to keep that in check? You need CD8 uh, killer T cells. I am seeing a 20 times increase in individuals over the age of 50 of this little bump in rash. Um, you know, that's innocuous, but it, what it tells me is the immune status of these individuals who have gotten the shot. We're literally weakening the immune system of these individuals. Now, most concerning of all is there's a pattern of these types of immune cells in the body that keep cancer in check. Well, since January 1, in the laboratory, I've seen a 20 times increase of endometrial cancers over what I see on an annual basis. A 20 times increase. I'm not exaggerating at all. Because I, I look at my numbers year over year. I'm like, gosh, I've never seen this many uh, endometrial cancers before. I'm seeing invasive melanomas in younger patients. Normally, we catch those early in their thin melanomas. I'm seeing thick melanomas skyrocketing in the last month or two. Um, I'm already seeing the early signals. And we are modifying the immune system to a weakened state. Great study out of Germany that looked at these profiles on young individuals after the Pfizer showing this locked in, and we don't know how long, maybe the immune system you know, is gonna regenerate and those ratios will go back up, but who's studying it? And where are the long-term trials? Two months, four months, how long is this profile locked in? We don't know. On inflation, so one in four Americans according to a new survey have experienced some kind of loss of income as a result of higher prices. The president has expressed concern about this. I, I know that you are working on different fronts on to, to address this, but I mean, how urgent is it and how, you know, is there any sort of specific um, concern that this is, is going to affect not just political outcomes, but just the overall economy? Sure. Well, Andrea, first, let me say that, you know, a lot of the talk about inflation, I'm not saying from you, but in general out there has been, uh, it's become a political cudgel and it shouldn't be. Uh, it's impacting, as you said, um, millions of Americans, uh, no matter their political party. Um, and that's certainly of concern to the president. Um, I would note that everyone from the Federal Reserve to Wall Street agree with our assessment that inflation is already expected to be to substantially decelerate next year. I know you're not talking about that, but that's an important component here. And economists across the board also agree that the president's economic agenda, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that he will sign on Monday, uh, and the Build Back Better uh, bill that we are working to, uh, to move forward will not add to inflationary pressure and will ease inflationary pressure over the long term. But when we move past the economic jargon, which I realize is what you're asking me, um, and talk about the real impacts on people's lives, we're really talking about 
cost to people, right? And you talked about this on Wednesday. So it's cost of childcare, cost of housing, uh, you know, cost of gas, cost of household goods. Uh, that's how people are, are experiencing this on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is, of course, of concern uh, to the president. Our view is that the real risk here is inaction. And the reason we uh, I wanted to do this slide today. One, I love slides and graphics. So on my first day back, because we had to have one. But um, but is because if we don't act on Build Back Better, what we're doing is we are won't be able to cut childcare costs in 2020. We know that is a huge impact on people's daily lives and American families. We won't be able to make preschool free for many families starting in 2022, saving many families $8,600. We won't be able to get ahead of skyrocketing housing costs. I mean, that's a part of this bill too. Has a major investment in uh, building new housing, uh, affordable housing uh, units, so that people can uh, can move into them and live in them and address the the pending housing. Crisis, and we won't be able to save American Americans thousands of dollars by negotiating prescription drug prices. So our view is this: this makes a strong case. This is a strong case for moving forward with this agenda because what we're really talking about is cost to American families, how it's impacting them, and that's something that if we don't act now, uh, we won't be able to address these things in the short term either. The president on Saturday. Is there anything that we've been doing? He's 79 years old. How does he keep fit? <laughs> we see him cycling. Does he do anything else? He certainly does enjoy a good ride on his bike uh, and does keep fit, uh, eats healthy, except for the occasional ice cream. Who among us doesn't love ice cream? Um, and again, as someone asked earlier, um, you know, the president will be receiving a physical uh, at some point soon, and we will release those details to you. Uh, uh, yes, and we will release those details to you as soon as that happens. All right. Just to be clear, and I know that's been a criticism, so that's why I said that, not an accurate one. Look, our view is that the rise in gas prices over the long term makes an even stronger case for doubling down our investment and our focus on clean energy options so that we are not relying on uh, the fluctuations and OPEC and their willingness to put more supply and meet the demands in the market. This is absolutely untenable. And I have to say, the mainstream media is part of this. They cover these issues, and then they go right back to having Republicans on talk shows, asking them about other issues, um, allowing them to air their phony grievances, rather than grilling them incessantly about why they tolerate this behavior. This is fascistic behavior. This is what fascist regimes do. They use extra, um, outside the bounds of reasonable democratic, um, small d, um, methods of getting their way. They intimidate, they threat, they use the threat of violence. Um, and this is absolutely intolerable. And it's been going on for years now in the Republican Party. And I think, number one, the House should do something about it. And by the way, I think they might get a couple of Republican votes at least. Both Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney and Congressman Adam Kinzinger have said they might be inclined to go along with it, which I think would be very healthy. Um, but I think you also have to have some new ground rules for the media. I think they have to stop treating Republicans like normal politicians. They're not normal politicians. This is not normal conduct. Um, this is a party that spends its entire time cooking up these ridiculous cultural memes, um, fanning violence, um, and uh, coming up with uh, outright lies. So where Jennifer, is the media? Jennifer, I think what you are saying is absolutely right. It's, we are living in asymmetrical times, and we have to call it what it is. I think that oftentimes people say they're, they're just words, but let's not forget the Tree of Life tragedy was based on inspiration from the former president. What we saw in the El Paso massacre, it was inspiration from the former president. 
that played out online and then went offline and to tragedy. And so you're absolutely right that we have to start creating and talking about what is happening before someone does get. Hmm. Well, he's sitting well, there in front of cameras trying to decide whether he wants to be chief of staff or not. Don't well, you think this would have already been decided uh, months ago by he and his family? Well, I have no idea. I, I don't question motive, Joe. No, it's very hard to question motive. You're a good man. I bet you do. You no, it's true. It's, it's the worst thing you can do in journalism is try to figure out motive. You, there's no way to determine but, it. But, no, but no, no, Chris, no. You, you play hardball. And so let's play hardball here. You've got a guy that just got elected president of the United States. He offers a job up, but you know, Lyndon Johnson, you just said, Lyndon Johnson, very disciplined. He wanted to make the announcements. You ask people quietly behind the scenes, do you want to work as chief of staff? Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I want to do everything I can to make this thing work, this new presidency work. And I think that is the that successful your job? model you just is, talked about yeah, that is my journalist. job. You so your job, job is to as a help this country to make this presidency work. Uh, um, to make this work successfully, because this country needs a success. All right, that's just that is a big old clusterfuck. You got Biden stammering and stumbling and fumbling. They're still litigating the 2016 election on MSNBC. COVID studies, press sec. I play a lot of press sec because, once again, we based almost everything. We we had people become stars talking about the base of the freaking Statue of Liberty. Ruben talking about don't treat them right. Make them bad. And then a blast to, fla- a blast to the past. Chris Matthews, at the time, saying something crazy. I'm here to help the president. That's my job. Help the president. What the actual fuck has happened? He was a crazy man back there for saying that. Journalists didn't do that. Now they all know. Mary Jo Pitzel. Senator Cinema was at Grant Wynn Memorial Service. One observer noted it was pretty risky to drop into a crowd of Democrats at a time like this. Courtney, even journalists know that a lot of Dems are completely fucking unhinged. They are. Jennifer Rubin. If the election is about his position on guns, he will lose. But if it's about Texas self-image as a big-hearted, can-do, and self-reliant state, he might have a shot. O'Rourke can elevate the values ours used to claim as their own. It's a pro-family refute, keep unvaccinated kids safe by barring schools from requiring masks. It's pro-small government, blah, 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 by stressing unity. That was the conservative on WAPO. Beto O'Rourke is just a permanent candidate. He's not going to win. He's not going to win. When you're famous, I sold shirts and I'm going to take your goddamn guns. It's fucking Texas. CDC admitting they have no record of an unvaccinated person spreading COVID after recovering from COVID. Our view is that the rise in gas prices over the long term makes an even stronger case for doubling down on fucking electric cars. And there you have it. You have an administration and a media that want you to be in pain. They want you not to have a good Christmas. They want businesses to go out of business. They want to put out the freaking uh, energy business and put them all on the fucking street. Learn how to code, motherfucker. Because they just want you to do what they say. Get rid of your car, drive an electric car, live in a fucking barn, don't have heat, suck it up, buttercup. And then they make actual, they're so arrogant 
On September 9, 2021, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain retweeted MSDNC's anchor Stephanie Rule's tweet and stated, OSHA doing this vax mandate as an emergency workplace safety rule is the ultimate workaround for the federal government to require vaccinations. They don't care about the law. The law gets in their way. Just fuck you. And, and if I can get this, I think it's blocked. Oh, no, it's there. This sums up the Democratic Party. Republican voter can't even afford a car from this century, she tweeted. Dem strategist Rachel Bickafort, a Trump supporter, old car seen in the photo of home in Los Angeles. What is the point of this tweet? Well, the point is what it is. They fucking hate you. They fucking hate you. Psaki, why? Question, why when Americans are seeing a higher price than Republicans united against a bill to lower care costs, prescription drugs, health care, child care? Because they're rooting for inflation. You rooted for the failure of the country. You worked to make it not successful for four years. Washington Post slams parents as state school board groups leave National Association. Lion Brian finally left. Nowhere in any article does it say he's leaving MSNBC because nobody watches his fucking show. Jesus Christ. Washington Post. Is there a point at which the unvaccinated need to be prosecuted? Really? Popular science. This one image illustrates the severity of climate change showing people underwater. Again, it's never true. Bloomberg. It's conventional wisdom for the U.S. economy is built on America's endless appetite to buy lots of stuff. It's your fault. Stop buying stuff. And then I played the Reuben. Needs new ground rules to work with Republicans that she used to be because she wasn't a good enough fucking liberal. People are still losing it. How we started. Rule. You can afford it. According to definitely Rule, people should stop complaining about paying more for food because the price of their home has increased. So should they sell their home or take out a loan on it to buy food? According to Rule, people should stop complaining about paying more for food because the price of their home has increased. Okay, I repeated that. One of the other arguments is the majority of th- households invest in the stock market, but much of that is intended for retirement. So is Rule's advice to them to stop that? With rising inflation and greater valuation for assets that generated wealth, the gap between the most and least well-off America is widening, and these are the people that spend all their time saying we need to float all boats and all the other fucking shit. These fucking people are for this.
I'm going to bookend this because it's so fucking good. It just so, it just sums it all up. And I want you to just objectively, whether you like Biden, don't like Biden, really think. If you're a liberal out there, think about this. 2016 election, got it wrong. Rittenhouse, wrong. Covington, wrong. Russian collusion, wrong. Vaccines, wrong. So they never get them done. So they never take them. Then they said they were done, and then they you have to take them. And now they're forcing people to take them. Bounties on U.S. soldiers, landing at Normandy, missed that one. Lab leak theory, Jesse Smollett, the Pulse shooting, the Atlanta shooting, Hunter Biden laptop, inflation, steel dossier. The MSM got every single one wrong when all the media narratives collapsed. Lapse. And I'm going to read this really quick because I think we have plenty of time, don't we? Oh, yeah, we're good because we're about at the end of the show. The news is perilous business. It's perilous because the first draft of history is almost always something wrong. It needs a second draft and a third and so on over time until the historians can investigate with more perceptive and calm. The job of journalists is to do as best as they can day by day and respond swiftly. When they screw up, correct the record and move forward. I've learned this the hard way, not at least the combination of credulous and trauma I harbor in the wake of 9-11. But when the sources of news keep getting this wrong and all the errors lie in the exact same direction and they're reluctant to acknowledge errors, we have a problem. If you look back at the last few years, the record of errors, small and large, about the major stories is hard to deny. It is if more Donald Trump accused the MSM of being fake news, the more assiduously they tried to prove him right. And then the mass deceptions of consequences. We're seeing this now in the Rittenhouse case, a gruesome story of reckless team with a rifle in the wake of the police shooting at Jacob Blake in Kenosha. The impression many got from much of the media was a far-right vigilante in the middle of the race riots has gone looking for trouble far from home and injured one man and killed two in the shooting spree. Now remember, a lot of people, because of the President of the United States, believe he's a white supremacist, but when they searched his record, his phone, and all his contact, he is not a white supremacist. Here's the New York Times on August 20, uh, oh, sorry, uh, killed two in a shooting spree. Here's the New York Times on August 27th, the morning after the killings. The authorities were investigating whether the white teenager was arrested was part of a vigilante group. His social media accounts appeared to show an intense affinity for gun, law enforcement, and Trump. So that makes you a vigilante. Rittenhouse races specified the race of the men killed and injured were never specified. That's by design you can't do this race shit if you actually say a white guy kills a white guy because when a white guy shoots a white guy nobody covers it when a white guy high on meth in florida but fucking naked with no weapons gets shot and killed that's not a story but a pack of six skittles in a freaking iced tea became the story. That's the same time. But notice how the narrative... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm fucking up by the numbers. Almost immediately, the complicated facts became unimportant. The far right viewed Rittenhouse as a hero, which they surely wasn't. And he had no business being there with an AR-15. The MSM and far left viewed him as a, vid, a villain, appalled that he was being elevated in James Bowie's words, as a symbol of self-defense, another New York Times article painting Rittenhouse as a mega-fanatic did not note at the very bottom of the page 
Supporters of Mr. Ratner said he was attacked by a mob and acted in a legitimate self-defense. But notice how the narrative embedded in the deeper one that black shooting was just a clear cut as Floyd murder, that thousands of black men were being gunned down by cops every year, that white supremacy was rampant in every cranny of America, effectively excluding the possibility that Rittenhouse was naive. And remember, this is when the president was running around. All he was saying is that America is systemically racist. There's white supremacists. Then he took office and said, we are going to root out white supremacy, the greatest threat, which they stopped doing now because they realized it wasn't working like they thought it was. He was naive, dangerous fool in the midst of indefensible mayhem who in the end shot assailants in self-defense. And so when this week, one of Rittenhouse pursuers, Gage Grosenhow, admitted on the stand that Rittenhouse shot him only after he pointed his gun, it came as a shock. Money quote from the defense lawyer, it wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced him with your gun and your hands down pointing at him when he fired, right? Correct. Here's how the New York Times first described this a year ago on August 26. Video footage from the scene of the shooting appears to show Mr. Rittenhouse running and then firing his gun, striking a man in the head. He then flees and is chased by bystanders before tripping, falling to the ground, and shooting another man. A day later, in another New York Times piece, which I relied on at the time, here's the account of video footage they embedded. As Mr. Rittenhouse is running, he trips and falls to the ground. He fires four shots at three people rushed towards him. One person appeared to be hit in the chest to fall to the ground. Another was carrying a handgun, grossing it, is hit in the arm and runs away. Any self-defense there? And when you watch the full version of the same video on YouTube, you see that for some reason the New York Times cut off the key moment showing Rittenhouse self-defense, the moment that proves so critical in court. On this show, we showed a video that was done by somebody who wasn't a far-right extremist that showed guns, 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 everybody with a gun. I haven't watched the whole trial, but if you watch for any length of time, you realize you've been led to believe a media narrative that was way off. Independent journalists last year, like Jesse Single, were more clear-eyed. Because of the narrative whiplash, we may have more rioting and violence if he's acquitted. The judge is already being targeted. I'm not defending Rittenhouse, and I understand news gathering is fallible, but there's a media pattern here, and it reaches far wider than Rittenhouse. We found out this week, for example, the key figures in the merge of the Steele dossier has been indicted, and it was a liar. Charles Dolan Jr., any thought, rumor, allegation I'm working on related to project against Trump. The evidence from another key source of the dossier, Sergio Milan. This doesn't mean that Trump was eager for Republican help, but Trump was right in the end about the dodgy dossier. He's right about the duped FBI original overage, and the mass media, Rachel Maddow, chief among them, were wrong. And yet the dossier dominated headline for three years, and the correction have a fraction of an audience of errors. Maddow gets promoted, and the man who first published it, Ben Smith, was made a columnist for the New York Times. Pulitzers were still handed. They're not coming back. Think of the other narratives the MSM pushed in rear seniors that have collapsed. The vicious defamed the Covington boys. They authoritatively told us that bounties had been placed on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan by Putin, and Trump's denials only made them more certain. They told us the lab leak theory of COVID was a conspiracy theory and with no evidence behind it at all. The New York Times actually had a story of the leak theory by Don McNeil, killed it, and then fired McNeil, their best COVID reporter, after some schoolgirls complained he wasn't woke. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The MSM took the ludicrous story of Jesse Smollett 
Smollett seriously because it fit their nutty white supremacy narrative. They told us that a woman was brutally gang-raped at UVA, that the Pulse shooting was driven by homophobia untrue, and that the Atlanta spa shooting was motivated by anti-Asian bias. No known evidence of that at all. For good measure, they followed up with a story after story about white supremacists targeting Asian Americans and new wave of hate, even as the assaults were disproportionately by black people. As Greenwald noted, the New York Times published an emotionally gut-wrenching but completely fiction that never had any evidence that Officer Sisnick's skull was savagely bashed in with a fire extinguisher by a pro-Tump mob until he died. The media told us that an alleged transgender exposure in white we Spa in Los Angeles was an anti-trans hoax, untrue. They told us that the emails were covered at Hunter Biden's laptop of Russian disinformation. They did their just before an election and used that claim to stymie the story on social media, but they were not Russian disinformation. They were valid, if minor news story, the media conspicuously kept from the audience for partisan purposes. More recently, the MSM was telling us for months that inflation is phantasm. We were told that 2021 inflation scare is another in a series of false alarms going back several decades. We were assured that the number of least four now are on the side of those expecting the trend to subside and then stabilize the lower levels. Any concern was fear-mongering politics, and now we wake up to the highest inflation in 30 fucking years. We were told that vaccines would end the COVID pandemic. But they merely altered COVID to a manageable disease that you still contract while vaccinated. We were told that migrant surge at the border was just seasonal and nothing out of the ordinary, even as 1.7 million migrants were illegally trying to get in the country in the last year. We were told that sending migrants back to their home countries was a wicked and unconscionable Trump tactic, even as Biden administration swiftly copied it with Haitian immigrants to much success. The cruelty is the point, eh? We were all, still are, being told that most of the media that critical race theory isn't in high school at all. Meanwhile, a tsunami of evidence shows that it is. We're getting things wrong. What makes this more worrying is simple that all these false narratives just happen to favor the interest of the left and Democratic Party. And corrections, when they occur, take up a fraction of the space, usually on the same article that nobody goes back to. That's my input. And at some point, you wonder what narrative are they pushing now that is also bullshit. One comes to mind, the assurance that the insane amount of debt we have incurred this century is absolutely nothing to be concerned about because interest rates are super low and borrowing more and more now is no brainer. But when inflation spikes and set a potential spiral and wage catch up, will interest rates stay so quiescent? And if interest rates go up, how will we service the debt? I still rely on the MSM for so much. I still read the New York Times first thing in the morning. I don't want to feel as if everything I read is basically tilted through wishful fulfillment, narrative-proving, and ideology. But with this kind of record, how can I not? We need facts and objectivity more than ever. Trump showed that. What we got in the MSM was an overreaction, a reflexive overreach to make the news fit the broader political fight. This is humanly understandable. It is professionally unacceptable, and someone has got to stop it. Britt Hume. Major media missed them all, not to mention UVA fraternity rape. Hands up, don't shoot. Michael Brown. That was all lie. Michael Lavani, Brian Sisnick, fire extinguisher. Border crisis. Others. You forgot eight years of Barack Obama. NASCAR noose was another. Is it considered a miss when it's done intentionally? Because they want to. As you know, it is intentional. 
It's almost like they're trying to invent a narrative for every story for us rubes. 2020 summer riots, Charlottesville. Good people. Duke lacrosse. The list is so long now that most of us don't watch the news. Subscriptions are at an all-time low. And let's flash back to Kenosha and see what they're doing right now, building up for the verdict. This poor man got his house, his business caught on fire. I'm sorry, sir. I'm very sorry about that, man. Yeah, really. I, hey, I have nothing to do with that. I'm trying to stop this shit here. Dude, I'm going to help this guy. I don't give a fuck if I get beat up. They just threw a bottle at this guy. Understand. Respect. Yes. Respect. Respect. 
Those are those heroes. And if you look this stuff up right now, if you start looking for misinformation, this is what you find. You're probably spreading misinformation. Here's how to stop. A citizen's guide to not helping trolls, bots, and other online disformers during turbulent times. You're probably spreading misinformation. Here's how to stop. Another one. There were hundreds. Yet are This Is America shows the federal government's doing it every day. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. Yeah, this is America. Runs in my area. I got the strap. Now, you told another senator you don't know how many gotaways there have been? Uh, I will have to circle back, uh, Senator, with that information. Yeah. So that wasn't a fact that, that you thought was relevant to this hearing? Oh, it is um, uh, absolutely uh, uh, relevant. I, I understand why the question 
is posed. It's a fact of great. Okay. You're, but you're not prepared to answer it. How about this? How many deaths, how many illegal aliens have died crossing illegally into the United States under Joe Biden's administration? I don't have that data. So the, so the deaths, you didn't prepare that data either. All right. How about this? How many children have been in the Biden cages in calendar year 2021? Um, uh, Senator, I uh, respectfully disagree with um, your use of uh, the term cages. Fine. You can disagree with it. How many children have been in the Biden cages? I've been to the Biden cages. I've seen the Biden cages. How many children have you detained at the Donna Tent facility in the cages you built told kids? How many children have been in those cages? Uh, uh, Senator, I can uh, uh, provide to you the following uh, figure that um, when and, and let me let me say that when a child, I, I don't child, I, 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 it's a simple question. How many children I, have been in those cages? Uh, I, I respectfully am not familiar with the term cages and to what you are referring. There are enclosures in which they are locked in, in which I took photographs and put them out because you blocked the press and didn't want people to see the Biden cages. The secure facilities in which they are locked down in Donna, that uh, those facilities, how many children have been in them? Senator, there are three types of facilities. There's the, the Donna tent cages, there, the, the Donna tent city. Let's take the Donna facility. How many children have been there? That is a soft sided facility. It is not. A okay. You're, are you going to answer the question? How many children have been in that facility? I, I will have to circle back with you with the precise number. Been sexually assaulted, being trafficked into this country in 2021. Senator, I have no ability to determine uh, how many. Okay, you don't know. So you didn't try to find out? Have been um, sexually assaulted in Mexico along the migratory. All right, how about this? How many children have been sexually assaulted by traffickers or other people when they were coming in illegally? I do not have that data. Okay, so you don't know that either. Let me ask you this. How many illegal immigrants have you released into the United States? who were COVID positive? Senator, we, it is our policy to test uh, individuals. I didn't ask your policy. How many illegal aliens have you released who were COVID positive? Well, let me just say, when they are released, they are placed in immigration. How many have you released that were COVID positive? I will have to get that number. Okay, you don't have that answer either. All right, let's, let, let's try this. How many illegal aliens have you released who had criminal convictions? Um, who have criminal convictions in Mexico? In the criminal convictions in whatever jurisdiction, uh, uh, those individuals, if they pose a public safety threat, how many individuals with criminal convictions have you released? Senator, I do not have that. OK, number. let's specify it more narrowly. How many murderers have you released? I'm not aware of any murderers. Whom how many rapists have you released? I'm not aware of any rapists. Whom how many child molesters have you released? I am not aware of any child molesters whom we have released into the United States. And I should say. Senior Customs and Border Patrol leadership have told me that your agency is slow walking and refusing to comply with the order. The soundbite I can't find is him literally saying there's no way you can literally protect the border with the ragged, jagged cliffs, wadis. Every day they lie. They spread misinformation every fucking day. And Twitter doesn't shut it down, just like Twitter doesn't shut down people fucking threatening to kill people. Twitter, Google, Facebook, MSM, Democrats, FBI, they're all in cahoots. They know better than you. You shut your fucking mouth. They can lie. They can misinterpret facts. They can do whatever the fuck they want because they're in charge. 
They got the guns. You're a piece of shit. Stay in your home, home, turn off your heat, eat less, consume less, don't drive a car with the gasoline engine. The only positive in all of this shit show is the fact that they are red-pilling millions of people. We're going to realize that everything the media tells them is a freaking lie. Non-stop, unadulterated lie. They obfuscate, won't cover it, report wrong facts, and if they correct it, it's buried on the same article that you never go back to. So let them. Let them push CRT. Let them do all this stuff. I think Americans are figuring out 81 million people didn't vote for these people. They stole the shit and they're working to steal it again. And let them try to steal the midterms and see what happens. Because more and more lefties I know are done. You can push all this utopian climate change bullshit and it sounds good when you frame your Twitter avatar. It's not good when it depletes your bank account. And that's what happened. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Share this with your family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com. You can find links to this show and all preceding shows on Rumble and SoundCloud. Disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. We're going to shoot, hopefully for a Saturday, if the wife doesn't want to do something. But if not, the 24th day before thanksgiving i get off early i'll come home and do one thanks for listening folks and take care